Well, breaking news, some sad news. Donald Trump's first wife, Ivana, has passed away at the age of 73. Those who knew her, I grew up in Manhattan, and those who knew her said she was a kind woman, three abortions shy of greatness. Three abortions shy of greatness. Ivana Trump, dead at the age of 73. Very kind woman. People who grew up in New York uh, spoke very fondly of her. Except if you were homeless. Welcome to the mop-up for July 14th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 80 degrees and partly sunny. Judah Friedlander, comedy genius from The Office. You've loved his comedy specials. He joins us in about 90 minutes. And in one hour, I'm taking your calls live. Everybody said they loved Monday show because I was taking calls from Sweden, Great Britain, and Mexico. So at the top of the hour, at 6 o'clock Eastern, I'll be taking your calls live. If you're in the Zoom room, please go ahead, raise your hands. I will discuss with you whatever you want to talk about. And if you're watching us live right now on our YouTube channel, go to my website. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com to join the Zoom room. Here's what you do. You hit the pay-per-view button and we'll take you right into the Zoom room. You just need Zoom. It's free. We call it pay-per-view. Oh, there's my coffee and my squeaky chair. You just hit the pay-per-view button on my website and it'll take you straight into our Zoom room. And uh, I will talk to you about whatever you want. Just raise your hand starting at six o'clock. That's one hour from now. Please, if you're in the Zoom room, raise your hand. We'll talk about what, whatever you want, please, in one hour. Congress passed next year's National Defense Authorization Bill. Added to it was an amendment calling for the Pentagon to prepare a report on how to combat neo-Nazi activity in the police and the military. This is called the Schneider Amendment, and it requires the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, and our Secretary of Defense to put together an annual report that examines the problem of white supremacists in what are called our uniformed services. I don't think that includes working at Subway or McDonald's, I think police and military. The amendment, the Schneider Amendment, also demands law enforcement and the military start coming up with a plan of action to make sure America's law enforcement and military keep white supremacists out. That seems like a, a reasonable request. Roughly 20% of the people arrested after January 6 in the Capitol were either active duty or veterans. According to several law enforcement agencies, the organizers of the January 6 riot all had ties to white supremacist groups. According to the conversation, several U.S. law enforcement agencies have characterized the Proud Boys as white supremacists and right-wing extremists. Enrique Tadio, he is the, the leader of the Proud Boys, while he claims to be black and Cuban, he ended up doing time for vandalizing a black church. We are talking about 
uh, white separatists who aren't always white. It's called mental illness. White supremacy is a mental illness. You can be Enrico Tarrio. You can be black and Cuban and still be a white supremacist because white supremacy is a mental illness. The Oath Keepers was founded in 2009 by a former army paratrooper, Stuart Rhodes, who claims to have tens of thousands of current and former police officers and military veterans as members. Hey, Dan, can you look up and see where Stuart Rhodes went to college? I, I think he went to an elite university like Yale or Harvard. Do, can you can you look into that, please, and get back to me in an hour? Thank you, Dan, in the newsroom. Anyway, Stuart Rhodes, who founded the Oath Keepers in 2009, uh, they were instrumental, as we know, in the January 6th riot. During his testimony before congressional investigators this week, former Oath Keeper spokesman Jason Van Tattenhove uh, talked about the Oath Keepers and that they were white supremacists, that they were incredibly dangerous. Well, that's the Schneider Amendment. The House this week also approved another amendment to the defense bill, which would authorize the General Accounting Office to issue a separate report on how Homeland Security, the FBI and the Pentagon are working to combat white supremacy in their ranks. If you'll remember, right before Biden was inaugurated, the Pentagon said we have a problem with white supremacists in our military. We we have to start getting rid of them. Seems like a reasonable amendment, right? The Schneider Amendment. Well, every single Republican voted against the Schneider Amendment and that amendment that would ask the General Accounting Office to issue a report on white supremacists in the FBI and the Pentagon. Every single Republican voted against these two amendments. Congressman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia and Paul Gosar of Arizona, well, they voted against these amendments, maybe because they spoke this year at the far-right America First Political Action Conference, which was organized by notorious white supremacist, white nationalist, Nicholas Frontes. And Paul Gosar has also visited local chapters of the Oath Keepers. According to Heidi Byrick, she's director of the Intelligence Project over at the Southern Poverty Law Center, she says most domestic terrorist incidents are perpetuated and perpetuated, as well as perpetuated, by former members of the military. The FBI warned as far back as 2008 that a growing number of right-wing extremists were retiring from our military and starting to pose a serious threat to our country. That was back in 2008 when George W. Bush was president. During the Reagan administration, the Pentagon under Casper Weinberger, these are Republicans, they issued an order banning all military members from belonging to any organization that it designated as a right-wing extremist group. And by right-wing extremist group, we're talking about the Ku Klux Klan. We're talking about any organization 
that speaks of white supremacy. There's no such thing as a left wing extremist group that purports to be in favor of white supremacy. Okay, the conservative movement, the right wing is synonymous with right wing extremists, white nationalists. According to the Military Times, more than one third of all active duty troops and more than half of minority service members say they have personally witnessed examples of white nationalism or ideological driven racism within the ranks in recent months. That's a a survey of 1,630 active duty soldiers, and it was conducted by Military Times. But Republicans, every single one in Congress, they do not want our military expelling or keeping tabs on any white supremacists serving in our military or our police. They say it's Orwellian to prosecute thought crimes. Well, belonging to the KKK, belonging to the Oath Keepers, that's not a thought crime. It is an open declaration of white supremacy. Nobody's getting arrested for belonging to the Klan. You're just not allowed to serve in our military if you serve in the Klan. Well, more on that. More on that. I remember when Barack Obama first became president, Janet Napolitano was director of Homeland Security, and she put together a Homeland Security report that said the real threat in this country is not from Muslims. It's from white nationalists. It's from right wing domestic terrorists. And the Republicans forced Obama not to issue that report. Well, the report is true. We are not under siege by Muslim or uh, Islamic terrorists. We are under siege. We are being attacked by right wing white nationalists who many of whom, too many of whom come out of our police and come out of our military. It's a problem. Well, President Biden is in Israel while he was there. The United States and Israel signed a joint declaration pledging to use all elements of national power to ensure that Iran doesn't obtain a nuclear weapon. Biden met with Israel's caretaker prime minister, Yair Lapid. Uh, Israel's government is in flux right now. Well, since it's Israel, it's more like acid reflux. So the prime minister is called a caretaker. And if anyone could use a caretaker, it would be Joe Biden. Uh, Yeah, Joe Biden spoke at, I think it was Yad Vashem. This is Joe Biden speaking today at the Holocaust Museum in Israel. Which we must do every, every day, continue to bear witness. To keep alive the truth and honor of the Holocaust, horror of the Holocaust. I think he just got a couple of Republicans to vote for him. The truth and honor of the Holocaust. Look, I don't mind Biden's brain going to mush. I have a problem what's in his heart. I don't care about his faltering memory and his misspeaking as long as he can occasionally, occasionally remember right from wrong. And this guy never really knew right from wrong. 
There's nothing for him to remember. So look, maybe maybe we're too rough on him. If you're not being evicted, if you're one of the lucky Americans who can come up with $1,000 for a medical emergency, maybe you can play the long game. And uh, maybe Biden will end up doing full, two full terms. Trump will disappear. The Republicans will crack up. The neo-Nazis in their ranks will be defeated. And, you know, in six years, we will salute Biden for playing the long game, playing a game we didn't understand you know, I, I wish that were true. I, I, I just know in my heart it isn't. I think if you're not in danger of getting evicted, I think if you have some money and, uh, you know, and he starts putting numbers on the board in six years, you can look back and say, hey, we survived. We survived the Republicans because of Biden the same way. We can say we survived the Civil War as long as you weren't one of the, what, 700,000 Americans who died? Uh, you know, so I don't know. I do know a new NBC News poll says Biden's approval rating are down to record lows. 36 percent overall approval rating. That's he's completely underwater. And when it comes to the economy, 30 percent, he's got a 30 percent Approval rating. These are all time lows for Joe Biden. The American people don't seem to be playing the long game that the, you know, the neoliberals with money in their pocket are willing to play. Here's what Bernie has to say. I think he says it best. The American people are sick and tired of seeing multi-billionaires like Mr. Musk and Mr. Bezos and Mr. Branson taking joy rides to outer space in their spaceships, buying $500 million super yachts and living in mansions all over the world, while some 600,000 people in our country are homeless. In other words, we're looking at two worlds. People on top never did better. Middle class continuing to decline and the poor living in abysmal conditions. Run, Bernie. You're the same age as Joe Biden. <laughs> You're not calling the Holocaust honorable. Your brain is still is, is as on fire as it was when I first heard you speak 35 years ago. Run. Well, abortion. Abortion recently became illegal in Texas after the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade. Doctors in Texas who perform illegal abortions right now could be sentenced to life in prison or fined up to $100,000. Abortion in Texas is outlawed even in the case of rape and incest. Now, that's the new ruling. The Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. They're leaving it up to the states to decide. And so once Roe was overturned, it immediately triggered a Texas law dating back to 1925. If you're a woman living in Texas, it's 1925 all over again. Now, the new law in Texas does permit an abortion if the mother's life is in danger. Rape and incest, you have to keep the baby. But if you can prove the mother's life is in danger, you can you can still get an abortion in in Texas. But that requires prosecutorial discretion. 
It all depends on the individual prosecutor to look into whether or not the mother's life was truly in danger. And was that really a miscarriage or some kind of abortiofacient? I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Abortiofacient is something, it is like the morning after pill, I think. Uh, here's the problem. Women lose babies all the time. How do you know whether or not it was an abortion? Who decides? Who gets to decide whether or not it was a miscarriage or an abortion? Whose words are you going to take if you're a white prosecutor in Texas? Because we all know about our criminal justice system. We take the words of women who can afford a lawyer and we lock up the women who can't. It's just that simple. Renita Shannon is a Georgia state representative, and yesterday she testified before the House Oversight Committee. Uh, Maloney is the chairman of that, and they're looking into the effects of the uh, reversal of uh, Roe versus Wade. And here is what Shannon had to say. What a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of the same uh, medications that are used for a miscarriage are also used for medication abortion, which is typically performed at home. And there's really not a way to determine if someone had a miscarriage or if someone had an abortion. And so what we do know is that our criminal legal system is really good at locking up black and brown folks. And so I am very worried that when a person has a miscarriage and they are interrogated by law enforcement or they are prosecuted, I'm very worried that our criminal legal system will likely believe Karen, but not believe Keisha when she says she had a miscarriage. That is Renita Shannon. She's a Georgia state representative. And uh, unfortunately, uh, she's uh, not. Anyway, uh, it would be nice to see her in Congress eventually. Let's go back to Texas, which is operating now under a 1924 Jim Crow era law. And... This isn't about protecting fetuses. This isn't about being pro-life. This is about finding any reason you can to lock up poor black women or poor white women and putting them to work in the fields, building furniture or whatever Texas's for-profit prison system requires. I don't have to remind you about the loophole in the 13th Amendment. We need our prisons filled. We need to criminalize Poverty. Abortion is a way of criminalizing poverty. This is about poor women. Abortion laws have always been about keeping people poor and punishing people for being poor. We need in America poor people. We need poor women, poor women with babies. We need poor women with babies because they do as they're told, because they're scared. They won't ask for overtime pay. They won't try to join a union if it means they're going to get fired. And they don't challenge their husbands. They don't challenge their husbands. They're grateful for any room and shelter their abusive husbands are willing to provide. Congressman Katie Porter, we've had her on the show and she has COVID. Get better, Katie. We love Congresswoman Katie Porter. C Congresswoman Katie Porter. Here's what she had to say during the hearings and pay attention. Rich women were more likely to suffer from physical health problems 
women who had an abortion or women who were denied an abortion? Women who were denied an abortion. Women who were denied an abortion. And which women were, um, were denying abortion does not just correlate with worse physical health, it also leads to financial problems. Which group of women, those who received an abortion or were denied an abortion, were more likely to be unemployed? For sure, those who were denied an abortion. Denied an abortion. Which group of women was more likely to live in poverty? Definitely those who were denied abortion. And which group of women was more likely to have low credit scores, to have their applications for housing or car loans denied? Those who were denied an abortion. So to summarize, women, when the decision to have an abortion was not, was taken out of their hands, when they were not able to have an abortion, to make their own decision, they had worse health outcomes, were more likely to be unemployed, were more likely to face financial problems like living in poverty or having low credit scores. Women who were denied abortions are four times more likely to live below the poverty line. They are less likely to be able to afford food and housing for themselves and their children. Ivanka Trump, I know you're mourning. My heart goes out to you. But why don't you come clean about your abortion? All your friends from uh, high school, all your female friends are stepping forward to talk about how they held your hand during your abortion. Why don't you do something for America and talk about your abortion and how rich white women have no problem getting abortions and that abortion isn't about saving fetuses. It's about oppressing poor women. Well, last week, in response to the Supreme Court ruling, President Biden signed a toothless executive order that would expand access to abortion pills and provide legal assistance to doctors who perform abortions to save a mother's life. This prompted Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becerra to remind hospitals and physicians that they are required to provide abortions in medical emergencies where the life of a pregnant woman is in danger. That's all Health and Human Services announced. It, it reminded physicians that they are required to provide abortions in medical emergencies. This is no big deal if you live in Texas. That's the law in Texas. If the mother's life is in danger, an abortion is fine, right? No big deal that Xavier Becerra announced that. But this isn't about abortion. It's about control and terror, at least for Texas Republicans. Abortion is about politics and the appearance of governance. So after Xavier Becerra made this announcement, the attorney general of Texas, Ken Paxton, today asked a federal court to block the Biden administration's requirement that physicians and hospitals provide abortions in medical emergencies for the mother, even though that's the law in Texas, right? This is about terror. It's using the courts to terrorize abortion doctors and women into not getting abortions. So in Texas, abortions are legal if it's a medical emergency for the mom. But we're going to waste everybody's time in Texas by going to the courts to overturn 
Health and Human Services reminding doctors, reminding doctors of what the law is in Texas. It's performative. The, the Texas Republicans don't want Biden up in their business when they're getting up in a woman's business. Now, what, what's going to happen is doctors are they're not going to perform abortions in Texas and women, not all, but some they're going to buy vibrators uh, and men in Texas are going to find themselves with fewer and fewer women willing to have sex with them. It's already harder and harder for men to find a sexual partner. New studies out show that younger men, if they're not impotent from uh, antidepressants and pornography, they're finding it harder and harder to find a willing sex partner. And we're discovering a rise of incels. Those are involuntarily celibate men who are angry because no woman will sleep with them. This is a serious problem. Uh, Steve Bannon tapped into incels in 2016. He went into their chat rooms to kind of court them for Donald Trump. Uh, so we're going to see a rise of the involuntarily celibate because any woman in her right mind is just not going to have sex with a man, not, at least not in Texas. And so you're going to have a lot of celibate men and it's in Texas. And you know what the next best thing to a woman is in Texas? A gun, a gun in Texas. You can buy as many guns as you want. And that's what we have in Texas. That's what we have in Texas. Sexually frustrated men who can't find women stupid enough to want to have sex with them because they can't get an abortion and plenty of guns. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court is creating for the rest of America. Horny men, horny, horny men with access to weapons. This is a recipe for collective suicide. We are being ruled by a Supreme Court of reactionary radicals who want to take us back to 1925, 1925, 1924, 1925, when there was no such thing as rape, let alone marital rape, and poor people could be rounded up for any reason, vagrancy. Now it's a miscarriage. Now we can arrest women for a miscarriage. You, you can arrest women now for... Uh, a suspicious period and our prisons will be filled with cheap labor. This is a Supreme Court that despises the 99 percent. They have nothing but contempt for ordinary Americans. They have nothing but contempt for 99 percent of the Americans who didn't get the education they got. My suggestion is you go visit your local jail, take a good look at it, get used to it. Think you can't end up inside of a jail? Think again. Think again. There's big business in locking Americans up. 2.5 million right now and counting. Well, Bernie says we have 600,000 homeless. I think that's uh, undercounting it. Uh, those are the homeless we know about. Uh, what about the people who say and do anything to keep a roof over their heads? Uh, the women who stay in abusive relationships for a roof. Uh, 
the children who stay with abusive parents for a roof. This is what the Supreme Court wants. They, they have us right where they want us, good and scared. We're afraid of getting shot. We're afraid of abusive men. We're afraid of losing a place to live. Rent now is rising at the fastest pace in nearly 40 years. The average apartment in Manhattan rents for $5,000 a month. Thank God for rent control. Although the Trumps did a pretty good job stripping rent control uh, here in New York City. But to live in Manhattan, the average apartment costs $60,000 a year. Manhattan landlords, have they've raised rents by 30% in the past year. Over the past 12 months, nationwide renters have seen a 6% increase in rent. And when you talk about inflation, the only thing you should be talking about is rent. 30% of the consumer price index is rent. That's how they weight the consumer price index. When they talk about inflation going up, 30% of that inflation is what you pay for rent. So it's not really an inflation crisis. It's a housing crisis. When housing is affordable, then inflation will go down. But there is no housing here in America. If you really wanted to bring down inflation, you wouldn't raise interest rates. You would raise buildings, not R-A-Z-E. You would lift, you would start building more housing. That's the solution to inflation. The government just needs to build affordable and or free housing. But our government is controlled by landlords and housing is an investment. And when we talk about inflation, we rarely talk about what drives inflation up, housing. And when we talk about housing, we talk about it as being a good investment. We talk about housing, the housing market being on fire as though that's a good thing. We don't talk about why the housing market is, an, is on fire. That we're not allowed to discuss because the reason the housing market is on fire is because they've created an artificial scarcity. There is a shortage of homes. This country's run by people who own homes, who own several homes, who own apartment buildings. So if you own a home, you're doing great. Inflation isn't a problem for you. But if you're trying to rent a home or an apartment, you are completely screwed. You are so terrified of your landlord. God forbid you should offend your landlord by moving out and asking for your cleaning deposit back. You get a bad recommendation from a landlord now, nobody will rent to you. Nobody will rent to you and you end up homeless. This is exactly the way the people who run our government want us, terrified of our landlords. I'll fix the sink, I don't wanna be trouble because eventually I'm gonna move out and I want you to say that I was a good tenant. They got us right where they want us and Americans are paying nearly half their salary just for a roof over their head. And uh, like I said, this, this economy and the government is controlled by homeowners, landlords, 
so the government won't build new homes. They want an artificial scarcity to keep prices high. Again, you want to combat inflation, build more homes. But then the people who own homes, their investment will go down. Supply and demand. Go to Los Angeles. Go to Los Angeles. They will come up with any excuse for homelessness other than the real excuse, which is housing is an investment. Well, Los Angeles, by the way, subscribe to my newsletter. I should mention that. Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com and sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday. It starts up again this week. I'm easing back into things and sign up for my newsletter. It includes an invitation to office hours, and we do office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. I host the first 90 minutes. I take your calls. I'm willing to talk about whatever you want, and then it's turned over to the community. You will meet much better people if you come to office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. And I will be taking your calls in 20 minutes. So raise your hand in the Zoom room. I'll talk to you about whatever you want. And if you're watching us on our YouTube channel, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit pay-per-view. It'll take you right into our Zoom room and you can participate in the show. Los Angeles has seen the number of COVID-related deaths double in the past month, as this new variant seems to be among the most contagious. Health officials warn that the numbers will get worse as we head into the fall with fewer and fewer Americans wearing masks or getting their second booster shots. Everyone is getting COVID. Everybody I know has gotten COVID. Luckily, everyone I know is somewhat healthy so they can get COVID. Joe Rogan, you know, he won. The Republicans won. No, nobody's wearing masks. And they say it's herd immunity, but it's really herd mentality. Because if you're vaccinated, yeah, you, you, it seems to me you, you get COVID and it's not that bad, which is why you should get vaccinated. But uh, if you get vaccinated, you still have a good chance of getting it, which is why you should wear a mask. And most importantly, if you get it, you can pass it along to the immunocompromised who who can't get it. They're not they're not allowed to get it. So, you know, half this country is obese. Twenty five percent of this country is morbidly obese. There are old people who cannot get covid. You cannot give them covid. That's what's setting in. It's a herd mentality, not a herd immunity. It's Darwinian. The, the herd is trying to weed out the weak. That's how animals, unfortunately, behave. They crush the weak. I had a, a cat named Melvin who had epilepsy. And after every epileptic fit, Sammy, who was the sweetest cat in the world, would walk over and try to crush his skull. That's how animals behave. They want to weed out. They want to protect the gene pool by killing the weak. That's the herd mentality. That's not herd immunity. What we've got going on in America, as always, is we're crushing the weak. When you don't wear a mask, you're saying 
hey, I'll be fine. And who cares about the weak? I don't care about the people who uh, shouldn't get sick. That's how it's working here in America. It is exactly like Donald Trump telling the Secret Service on January 6th, go ahead, let let those people who are brandishing assault weapons, let they can go, come hear me speak on the ellipse because they're not going to use those weapons on me. I'll be fine. Wear a mask. Wear a mask. Donald Trump says he's made a decision as to whether or not he's running for president and will make the announcement in September. Gee, I wonder what his decision is going to be. Uh, he's got to run for office. I don't think he wants to be president, but he's got to run to stay out of prison. Here's a suggestion. The best thing to do if you're facing criminal indictment, run for office. That way you're free to claim that the justice system has been politicized. And that's the way it's going to work. He's going to run and Merrick Garland is going to find it very hard to prosecute someone who got 75 million votes in the last election and is running again. It's very easy to uh, claim that the Justice Department, that your trial is political. This is why Chris Christie ran for president in 2016. Right after Bridgegate, he declared that he was running for president because then it was harder to prosecute him for Bridgegate because, he, you know, it's unseemly to to prosecute someone who's running for president. That's what they do in Latin America. That's what they say they do in Latin America. Do we want to end up uh, like a banana republic? Well, we should be so lucky to be a banana republic. Income inequality here in America is far worse than anything we saw at the height of the banana republics in the 70s. And so Trump is running. And for the first time since he left the White House, Trump returns to Washington, D.C. later this month to speak at the America First Policy Institute. He is also reportedly holding private dinners with donors. Meanwhile, CNN reports today that Donald Trump placed calls to former low level White House staffers urging them not to testify before the January 6th committee. That's witness tampering. It's a felony. Chairman Benny Thompson, he heads the January 6th committee, he said yesterday that he is planning to pass this information on to the Justice Department, but did not say whether or not he would make an official criminal referral. Witness tampering is against the law. But I don't know. How do you prosecute Trump? There are so many crimes. Where's the sport? If you're a prosecutor, where's the sport in prosecuting Trump? Uh, are you going to be proud if you're a prosecutor to say that you put Trump behind bars? How hard is that to do what you're supposed to do? Locking up Trump is like remembering to wear your pants before going outside. It's what you're supposed to do. It's what it's the least you could do is prosecute Trump. Nobody ever says, hey, great job. Uh, you use the toilet instead of taking a dump in the corner. Hey, great job. No, you don't get complimented for not 
taking a dump in the corner and using the toilet. That's what civilized people do. And that's what locking up Trump is. It, it's using the toilet instead of taking a dump in the corner. And I think one of the reasons Garland won't lock Trump up is it's too easy. You don't get credit for how tough. It's like beating Granada in a war. Uh, it's just too easy. I think that's why Garland uh, isn't prosecuting. And Garland's a feckless coward. That's the other reason. He doesn't want the aggravation. In Shinstown, West Virginia, on July 11th, a baby boy was born inside a 7-Eleven. That means he was born on 7-Eleven inside a 7-Eleven. And because the baby senator is Joe Manchin, his life expectancy in West Virginia is anywhere between 7 and 11 years. Things haven't gotten better. We've just changed the, the subject, as we always do in America. Remember the baby formula shortage? Still going on. But they just changed the conversation. The Wall Street Journal reports that despite everything the Biden administration is doing, shipping baby formula in from Germany, it's still hard to get baby formula. Remember Ukraine? Remember, we were always talking about Ukraine. Remember how that was on the front pages? Remember that? Remember we gave how many? 50 billion, 60 billion dollars. We're giving another billion next month to Ukraine and weapons. Remember that? Remember the war in Ukraine? Not going well. The U.N. says close to 15,000 so far have died. Close to 4,000 Civilians have died. Six million refugees. Russia is landing missiles inside Kiev again. And Putin is regrouping, solidifying his gains in southern Ukraine. And what is Joe Biden's response? More weapons. Just, you know, more weapons. The, the war in Ukraine, which we don't talk about anymore, is, you know, it's three months old, four months old. It's ancient. Uh, the war has driven up, as we know, the cost of oil, which has been great for Russia. Russia's trade surplus is triple what it was a year ago because Russia produces oil, maybe not for the West, but for the rest of the world. And so its trade surplus has tripled. Russia's exports of oil to China are up 50 percent. Russia's doing pretty good. The ruble has gotten stronger and... This prolonged war in Ukraine is causing inflation for the rest of the West, especially when it comes to energy and food. It is tipping us towards recession. There is a growing consensus now that Putin has no intention of ending the invasion of Ukraine as he solidifies his gains in the separatist region of eastern Ukraine. The war is not going well for Zelensky or Biden, but they've changed the subject. There is a growing consensus that continuing the war in Ukraine will result in food shortages that will lead to famine, riots, and a crisis of debt that will not be limited to third world nations. 
there is a growing consensus that despite the European nations coming together with economic sanctions, despite all that, these economic sanctions aren't working. There is a growing consensus that Russia doesn't need Europe because Russia is used to suffering. The Russian people are used to pain and the West is not. Even Henry Kissinger is talking about peace negotiations. Eventually, we're going to have to negotiate with Putin. So I guess we have to find another war to keep the military industrial complex happy. And then we'll negotiate. If we can find some other country that will let us give them $70 billion worth of weapons, then we can start helping the people of Ukraine and demand that Putin or Biden comes to the table. Seems to me Biden's the one who isn't uh, talking to anybody about peace. Putin is meeting, meeting with the leaders of France, Turkey, Israel, Germany. Biden's meeting with nobody to discuss ways to stop the killing of Uh, Ukrainians, six million of whom have lost their homes. The Intercept reports that a male nurse working inside a for-profit ICE detention center has been accused of sexually assaulting four detainees. The attacks reportedly took place on December 31st, 2021, inside U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement's Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia. That's a for-profit prison run by our friends over at Core Civic. It's a publicly traded company, Core Civic. Four women, all asylum seekers. And it's against the law, by the way, to place asylum seekers in a detention facility. You'll notice there are six million uh, uh, refugees who have left Ukraine And they're living in Belarus, not Belarus, uh, Hungary and Poland. And uh, they're not in detention centers. But in America, we violate international law and lock up uh, people who are seeking asylum. Well, these four women, the asylum seekers, have filed a complaint with the Department of Homeland Security's Office for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. Core Civics, Core Civic, which runs the jail, the for-profit jail, said it conducted its own internal investigation. And gee, what a surprise. CoreCivic insists that these accusations, these sexual assault accusations are completely unfounded. Who would have ever guessed that CoreCivic would find no, no truth to these accusations? Uh, This is all according to The Intercept. Now, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, In 2018, Core Civic reported nearly $2 billion in revenue. Almost 30% of their revenue came from its contracts with ICE. In January of 2019, ICE was paying Core Civic $62 per day for each immigrant held at the U.S. Immigration and Custom Enforcement Center in Lumpkin, Georgia. It's known as the Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia. It's run by Core Civic for ICE. Core Civic, 
formerly the Corrections Corporation of America, sells right now for $10 a share. Not good. Not a good investment. $10 a share. Back in 1998, CoreCivic sold for close to $150 a share, right? Now, if you look at the stock market, stock market since 1998 has, what, doubled and doubled again, I think. But CoreCivic, which runs private prisons, it went from $150 a share to $10 a share. Why was it so expensive back then and why is it so cheap now? Well, it lied to shareholders. It committed a crime. It lied. You're not allowed to lie to investors. CoreCivic said that privatizing prisons will save money for the government. You should invest in CoreCivic because they're go- the government is going to see the wisdom of private prisons and money is going to come pouring into Core Civic. That was a lie. They lied when they said they can run prisons more efficiently than the government. They lied to the government and they lied to investors. It's illegal. Core Civic should be in one of its prisons. And eventually, the lie was discovered and the share prices plummeted. Everybody sold their shares in Core Civic. So it went from $150 to $10. And last year, Core Civic settled a lawsuit for close to $60 million brought by shareholders accusing the company's leadership of illegally inflating the share price by lying about its contracts, its values, and what it can provide to the federal government. Again, CoreCivic, publicly traded corporation, sold itself to both investors and the government as a solution to prisons. It told investors and the government that when it comes to keeping people behind bars, CoreCivic can do a better and cheaper job than the government can, which is a lie. It is a lie. A for-profit prison has to turn a profit. That means it can't do a better and cheaper job than the government can. And in 2016, Barack Obama's Department of Justice ordered the Bureau of Prisons to end all their contracts with Core Civic and all other for-profit private prisons after an exhaustive study revealed what I could have told you back in 1998 when Core Civic was selling for $150 a share. I, the, the Justice Department discovered that privately run prisons actually have more safety and security issues than federally run prisons. And more importantly, in 2016, Obama's Justice Department discovered that private prisons cost more than government-run prisons. And to Obama's credit, after that study was released, CoreCivic lost most of their federal contracts and its stock plummeted. CoreCivic, according to this lawsuit, misled investors by claiming it was a growing business 
because it was more efficient financially for the government to pay core civic to run a prison instead of running running that prison itself. And like I said, core civic settled with shareholders for close to $60 million. This was a civil trial, but no criminal prosecution for core civic for misleading investors, no criminal prosecution for core civic for lying to federal officials and saying that they could run a prison better than the federal government can. You would think that a for-profit prison company that commits a crime would be the first company to end up in prison. Their leadership would end up in prison. One would think in a civilized country we would lock up the, the CEO of Core Civic for misleading shareholders and the federal government. No. No. Eric Holder, Attorney General under President Obama, he wasn't going to prosecute the CEO of Core Civic. No, that would be unseemly. Ah, that's some good water. And like I said, Trump became president and reversed the Obama Justice Department's findings. They renewed contracts of, uh, with Core Civic and other private prison companies uh, for private detention centers, especially with ICE. The federal government uh, started using for profit uh, detention centers again. And Core Civic still is a bad investment and still costs more than the federal government does. But the people who champion Core Civic claim they're all about fiscal responsibility. Core Civic doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for the shareholders. It doesn't work for the inmates or the employees. And it doesn't work for the government. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for anybody except for one person. It's CEO Damon T. Hinninger, H-I-N-I-N-G-E-R of Nashville, who earned five and a half million dollars last year. One man gets to keep five and a half million dollars by keeping the lie alive. All it takes is one man who just wants to make five and a half million dollars and he will hire all the lawyers and lobbyists to perpetuate the lie that core civic can run a prison cheaper and more efficiently than the government can. This is why executive pay, exorbitant executive pay is so obscene. Exorbitant executive pay only benefits the executive who is being paid exorbitantly. Uh, exorbitant executive pay does not reflect on how the company is actually doing. And the chances are the higher the CEO gets paid, the less he answers to shareholders and to the board and to his employees, which means the poorer the company performs. You show me a company that overpays its CEO and I'll show you a corporation that's racking up debt. This is why executive pay is important. 
Belmart University is a private Christian university in Nashville, Tennessee. And up until last year, Belmont University had Damon T. Hinninger, the CEO of CoreCivic, they had him serving on their board of trustees, but not anymore. Turns out the students at this private Christian college are real Christians. And after these Christians discovered Damon T. Hinninger, CEO of CoreCivic, was on the board of their school, they demanded he be kicked out, and he was. The kids didn't approve of how he made his fortune. Good for you. Student debt. Let's talk about college. Student debt in America, by the way, is approaching $2 trillion. New reports indicate that in the past two years, more than 1 million Americans decided to drop out of college. College enrollment has declined by 1% each year for the past decade. Well, Arizona passed a new law forbidding citizens from videotaping police officers at a close distance. It is legal, it is legal to video police officers in every state. In Arizona, you can't uh, videotape them at a close distance. I'll talk about that in a second. But here's a fun thing to do. Walk up to a police officer with your iPhone videotaping this and ask him or her what the Fourth Amendment is. Try it. With the camera running, go up to a police officer, ask a police officer what the Eighth Amendment is. It's fun. Do it. How many police officers know that uh, the Fourth Amendment protects citizens from unreasonable search and seizure? They, uh, how many police officers know that the Fifth Amendment protects us uh, against a, a, a trial without an indictment or self-incrimination? How many police officers know that uh, the Fifth Amendment protects us from property seizure? Like, uh, you can't just take my cash because you think it's uh, drug money, you know, asset forfeiture. That's how many police departments pay their bills. What's all that cash doing in your trunk? That's drug money. We'll take it. And they don't have to return it, despite what the Fifth Amendment says. How many police officers know that the Sixth Amendment guarantees us a right to a speedy trial, gives us a right to be informed of what we're being charged with? I was recently arrested. I'm not allowed to talk about whether or not anybody or how long it took me to be informed of uh, what I was being charged with uh, or my Miranda rights. Uh, how many police officers know that the Seventh Amendment guarantees us right to a trial by jury? Uh, how many wardens in our nation's prisons know that the Seventh Amendment guarantees us the right to trial by a jury? And how many Americans can tell us how many of the 2.5 million behind bars ever had a trial. They don't really know the number, but I can assure you a vast majority of the 2.5 million Americans behind bars right now never had their Seventh Amendment right to a trial. 
cheaper to make them plea bargain, to just scare them, to scare somebody who's been arrested into pleading guilty without a trial. Seventh Amendment, right to a trial. Ask a cop about if he knows or she knows what the Seventh Amendment is. Ask a cop if he knows what the Eighth Amendment is, which protects us against excessive bail, excessive fines, and cruel and unusual punishment. The Eighth Amendment, excessive bail. How many people, the 2.5 million behind bars tonight, how many are behind bars because of excessive bail? How many people are arrested because of excessive fines, which are in violation of the Eighth Amendment? How many African-Americans are overly fined for a busted taillight and then they don't have the money to pay it and then they get pulled over again and the cop sees that there's a bench warrant and next thing you know, it's 60 shots in the back in Akron, Ohio. Cruel and unusual punishment. You know, Half of our Bill of Rights involve how the cops are supposed to interact with the citizens. Half of the Bill of Rights involve how our cops are supposed to treat us. I don't ask too much from cops, you know, but grab your cell phone and go videotape a police officer. If you're white, don't do this if you're uh a person of color or a member of the LGBTQ community. But if you're white and it looks like you can afford a lawyer, you have a moral and patriotic duty to grab your cell phone and videotape police officers, you know, at a protest, ask them what the Fourth Amendment is. You think they can tell you? What percentage of cops know your rights. And uh, which begs the bigger question, what percentage of you know your rights? I surrendered my rights when I was arrested. I was so scared. I, I was so claustrophobic. I would have confessed. I would have confessed to the, the murder of Joan Benet Ramsey. Uh, which is only fair since I am responsible for the murder of John. But I would have, if you could have promised me three hours of sunlight, I would have confessed to anything. Find out what your rights are. And if you're white and you can afford a lawyer or you dress like you can afford a lawyer because nobody can afford a lawyer. But if you look like you might be able to afford a lawyer, or if your last name is Feldman, so they think you're a lawyer, videotape your, yourself questioning the cops. Uh, find out how many amendments, how many of the Bill of Rights they know. Maybe you'd be surprised by how little they know. Well, according to this new Arizona law, you are not allowed to videotape a police officer if you are within eight feet or closer. So you can videotape a police officer in Arizona except when he's an actual threat to you, right? When, when the police officer starts clubbing you over the head and you, you forget to turn the video camera off, then he can arrest you 
for videotaping uh, him beating you over the head, unless he's beating you over the head with a, a club that is longer than eight feet. Um, by the way, I don't hate the police. I just want to know why so many of them hate us. Is crime up? They say so. They say so. Uh, crime is up, but nobody has defunded the police anywhere. And yet crime is up. The fiscally responsible Republicans say crime is up, so we have to give more money to the police, even though we haven't defunded the police yet. Crime is up, and we're told crime is up because of lefties who have talked about defunding the police. The talk of defunding the police is why crime is up, because they haven't defunded the police. If anything, the municipalities are uh, spending more on the police. But the talk of defunding the police is why crime is up. Uh, you know, I wasn't going to rob that liquor store, but now that all these lefties keep talking about how we should spend more money on social workers and less on police, I'm going to go rob that liquor store. Crime is up, so they say. And what is their answer? Spend more on police, even though police spending is at record levels and crime, they say, is still going up. You know, maybe police have nothing to do with crime, preventing or solving it. Like I've said on previous shows, 1% of all felonies in America, 1% are solved by police. And when it comes to sexual assault, it's below 1%. The police do not uh, solve sexual assault. They don't solve Rape. And, you know, maybe if you factor in all the transgender men and women who've been raped by police, uh, they probably cause more rape than they solve. Uh, but we're supposed to spend more money on the police. Uh, so say the conservatives. The, the same people who want us all to carry guns insist they love the police, right? And yet they don't trust the police to keep them safe. That's why we need guns. This is insanity, right? The same people who believe in the Second Amendment and everybody should have a gun say, God bless the police. Let's spend more money on the police. We need the police. But I need a gun because who's going to protect me? It's not like the police are going to protect me. I need a gun. These are the same People who think this way. Uh, how does the right wing square this? They, they can't wait to say, spend more on the police. They can't wait to, to say, give the police more power. Strip us of our constitutional rights. Give the police more power. And it's the same right wing that insists that we need the police to keep us safe. Right? Who are you going to call? If you don't like the police, who are you going to call? Right? We love the police. They keep us safe. But we need guns because the police can't keep us safe. I, I would love to have a right wing politician explain that one to me. You love the police because they keep us safe, but not safe enough that you don't need a gun. You got to get a gun because the police can't keep us safe.
Well, how do you square all that? Well, if you're a member of the right wing, uh, you're you're a fascist. Uh, You want a police state and you want your freedoms, but you're not willing to extend those freedoms to people of color, women and poor people. This is all wrapped up in the same package, right? Guns, religion, racism, scapegoating, sexism, hatred for the LGBTQ. That's all how you work the fascist playbook. That's how fascism works. A a ruling class of ultra-privileged, generally white people who find any excuse to put anyone behind bars. You need your scapegoats. You need your scapegoats. Anyone who isn't Christian or depending on which country you live in, uh, anyone who isn't white, anyone who isn't heterosexual, anyone who wasn't born here. And of course, you always make women sexually obedient and men. uh, That's the undercurrent of fascism is powerful men making weaker men sexually obedient to them. And this comes very naturally to to men. It's, you know, that's how men, uh, that's their default. Well, Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert appeared on Steve Bannon's podcast this week to mock the notion of separation of church and state and said Congresswoman Elon Omar violates our quote-unquote separation of church and state every time she walks into Congress wearing a hijab. That's, that's what uh, Lauren Boebert said. She said that uh, by wearing a hijab, Ilan Omar is violating uh, separation of church and state. Uh, and I guess Boebert violates separation of church and state every time she walks into Congress carrying a pistol because that's her religion, right? Uh Bobert's restaurant, Shooter's Grill, she has a restaurant named Shooter's Grill, located in Rifle, Colorado. It's closing. Yes, this is true. I, Lauren Bobert owns a restaurant in Rifle, Colorado called Shooter's Grill, where waitresses wear nine millimeter pistols. It's kind of like Hooters, but it's Shooter's. Get it? And it's closing, Shooters is closing, after the landlord refused to renew the lease. Lauren Boebert is learning about the real castle doctrine, that it doesn't uh, apply to landlords evicting you. It turns out they can raise the rent and uh, to a point where you can no longer stand your ground. That's how it works, Lauren. In America, your home is your castle if you want to shoot and kill someone. Uh, then you have plenty of protection. But when the landlord decides to jack up your rent and evict you, there's no castle doctrine. There's no law that allows you to stand your ground and protect your family. Meanwhile, WNBA player and Olympic gold medalist Brittany Griner, I'm probably mispronouncing her last name because I don't watch television. Uh, Brittany Griner uh, She's being held inside a Russian jail after pleading guilty to possessing marijuana oils. And she appeared in Russian court yesterday and she's been held since February 17th. 
No verdict was announced, so she is expected to appear once again on Friday. Fox News' Tommy Laren, Tommy Laren, it's a woman, said Brittany Griner broke the law. Marijuana oils are illegal in Russia, so she should remain in prison. That's Tommy Laren from Fox News. Laren added that Griner shouldn't be freed from that Russian prison because Griner has openly opposed the playing of our national anthem before WNBA games. See, I used to say people like Lauren Boebert or Tommy Laren aren't worth talking about, but sometimes it's important to find out what these people are saying because uh, it's not just them. It's the entire right wing that is this stupid. And, And is she really any crazier than Alito or Thomas? Uh, I mean, is there really any measured reasoning behind overturning Roe v. Wade or New York's gun laws? What, what is the difference between Alito and Thomas and Tommy Laren and Lauren Boebert? You just say whatever you want to do. You say whatever you want to justify uh, your greed, racism and stupidity. Uh, The National Anthem. Who would believe that Antonin Scalia would sound like Warren Berger these days? You go back and read Antonin Scalia. Uh, He wrote the majority decision that kept it legal to burn the American flag. It is legal to burn the American flag because of Antonin, Antonin Scalia. But how far with the Supreme Court are we, uh, how far away are we right now from overturning Scalia's uh, protection of the right to burn the American flag. Uh, How far away are we from mandating that everyone rise for the national anthem? How far away is that? Two years ago, Greiner said she wouldn't stand for the national anthem. She said, I'm not going to be out there for the national anthem. She's African-American. She said, I'm not going to be out there for the national anthem. If the league continues to want to play the national anthem, that's fine. But I will not be out there. I don't mean that in any disrespect to our country. My dad was in Vietnam and a law officer for 30 years. I wanted to be a cop before basketball. I do have pride in my my country. Uh, Yeah, the anthem, the obsession with the national anthem is born fascism. Fascism is all about rooting out those who are loyal and those who are not. Of course, it all depends on your definition of loyalty. Your definition of loyalty may not be mine. Uh, People on the right want you to be loyal to inanimate objects like the flag, the national anthem, but not our fellow citizens. Screw our fellow citizens. You should be loyal to the war, but not our veterans or our children. No, no loyalty there. You have to be loyal to the symbols of America, not actual Americans. The Star Spangled Banner is where you show your loyalty, not to the millions of Americans living on the street who uh, can't afford health insurance. No, it's more important that you remain loyal to the Star Spangled banner, which wasn't our national anthem until 1931, more than a century after it was written by a Southern slaveholder, Francis Scott Key, 
who, if that if that's not bad enough, he was a southern slaveholder. He was also a lawyer. And not just any lawyer, he was President Andrew Jackson's district attorney for Washington, D.C., where he enforced runaway slave laws. Gee, you think African-Americans might have a problem with his music? Uh, one of the lyrics to the national anthem that we don't sing celebrates America's victory in the War of 1812. And those lyrics tell the story of how American soldiers stood up to the evil British who were gathering up runaway slaves and convincing them to fight for Britain, promising them freedom if they would fight for, for, for Britain. The Star Spangled Banner was written by a slaveholder and has lyrics that celebrate the, the tracking down of runaway slaves. It's a bad song written by an even worse guy. Uh, but in the world of far white, far white and right punditry and politics, failure to sing the national anthem means you're not a real American and you're not entitled, therefore, to all our freedoms if you won't sing the national anthem. It's ridiculous that I have to talk about this, but, you know, uh, a year ago, I, I really thought abortion was a non-star. I, I didn't think we had to really talk about abortion. I, I didn't think I I didn't think they were going to overturn Roe v. Wade. I knew it was hard to get an abortion. And we did talk about that. But I never thought the Supreme Court would uh, overturn Roe v. Wade, which was what? 73, 74. I think it was 73. Six years earlier, 67. Loving versus Virginia legalized interracial marriage. Right. So they've taken us back to before 1973. What about Loving v. Virginia, 1967? Up until 1967, it was illegal for a white person to marry a person of color. 67, uh, the Warren Court overturned a judge who defended what were called anti-miscegenation laws. This is what a judge in a lower court role wrote in the mid-60s to justify outlawing interracial marriage. We're talking about the mid-60s. This is, was written after the Civil Rights Act. This is what a judge wrote uh, to defend anti-miscegenation laws. Quote, Almighty God created the races white, black, yellow, Malay, and red, and he placed them on separate continents. And but for the interference with his arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. The fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend for the races to mix. This is a judge in the mid-60s upholding anti-miscegenation laws. He goes on to write, Almighty God created the races white, black, yellow, Malay, and red, and uh, they shall not mix. Uh, that's what a judge wrote in the 60s. By the way, intermarriage uh, was perfectly fine back then for black people and Chinese people or Native Americans. Intermarriage was only against the law for white people. These laws were there to protect the purity 
of the white race. This is, you know, 20 years after World War II, 20 years after the Nuremberg trials, these laws were still on the books in some states in America. And these laws were, weren't voted away. It was the courts who had to overturn them. Uh, same way same-sex marriage. We needed the courts to give us same-sex marriage. You know, as, as lightened, as enlightened as we fancy ourselves, uh, our, you know, our democracy, you know, uh, it was the courts that gave us interracial marriage, gave us same-sex marriage. We couldn't put it to vote because it wouldn't win. Obama didn't favor same-sex marriage until the very end of his first term. And he didn't introduce any legislation to pass it. There was no legislation that legalized same-sex marriage. We hear a lot of complaints about how the Democrats didn't codify into law Roe v. Wade. There was never any legislation that legalized abortion. It was the courts that gave us abortion, same-sex marriage, interracial marriage. We have a deeply flawed system run by deeply flawed politicians. We need good judges because if it's left up to the politicians, there's going to be very little progress. It was the Warren court, more than the Johnson administration, that gave us all this progress. And I believe that. I think there's a problem with the American people. There aren't enough Americans to make our politicians do the right thing. Uh, our politicians aren't terrified of us. And either are our Supreme Court justices. To this day, the Supreme Court, they're not terrified by overturning Roe v. Wade. We haven't been loud enough. And uh, interracial marriage, same-sex marriage, contraception, gay sex. You think uh, heckling Justice Kavanaugh at Morton's Steakhouse is going to scare these people? Let's see how many people turn out to vote in November against the Republicans. Let's see how many people demonize the Republicans and are, and are terrified enough uh, because the, the Republicans have shown their hands. Again, no, no fan of the Democratic Party, uh, but the Republicans have shown who they really are. They're against abortion, same-sex marriage. They're against same-sex sex. They're against interracial marriage. They're pro-guns, pro-prison, anti-poor. They want to criminalize poverty. They're anti-people of color. They're anti-LGBTQ. They're anti-Muslim. And they're anti-Semitic. They hate Jews. They love Israel, but they hate Jews. They just, you know, they hate Jews so they want the Jews to move to Israel. And the only reason they like Israel so much is they hate Palestinians more than they hate Jews. And these are hateful, dangerous people. It's not too big a leap for this court 
this Republican Party, to take us back to before the Oberfeld ruling, which legalized same-sex marriage, which is only a decade old. Same-sex marriage in America, we, we take it for granted now because, you know, Madison Avenue has embraced same-sex marriage. It's only a decade old. If they can take us back in Texas to 1925, they can take us back to the early 70s when uh, same-sex marriage was against the law. They can take us back to the mid-60s when interracial marriage was against the law. Well, I should wrap it up. Uh, I'm going to be taking your calls a little later on. Uh, we lost Ivana Trump today, who was, a very, as I said at the top of the show, she was a very kind woman. Uh, if you knew her, she was very kind. Three abortions shy of greatness. And this is what her son is talking about as his mother is dying huge gaffe out of the White House. And this time, it's not Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. Amazingly enough, it's someone else. Because Jill Biden started Taco Gate. Taco Gate, where she compared to Hispanics to breakfast tacos by saying they are, quote, as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio at a very, very public speech. <laughs> Your mom's dying, and you decide to go after uh, First Lady Jill Biden uh, for saying this, for offending Hispanics by saying this. This is what the Republicans are saying that is offensive. But we can't get those things on our own. Raul helped build this organization with the understanding that the diversity of this community, as distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio, <laughs> is your strength. Well, Bogodas, I don't know what a Bogoda is. This is what the Republicans are fixating on. This is why they're, this is how they're courting the, uh, the Hispanic vote by playing that quote over and over again, uh, as opposed to Donald Trump, who courts the Hispanic vote by saying this. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. Yeah. We'll be back with Judah Friedlander, the hysterical Judah Friedlander. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com, coming up. Judah Friedlander. Distraction. We wake every morning. 
Like the Rolling Stones Cause we just can't get no satisfaction Democracy's in change We could bury its remains But infotainment culture has infected our brains We're living every day We're living every night In the USA of distraction The wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive Is burned into our brains by cable TV Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news Fear and white anxiety shape our views The fourth estate has crumbled into an irrelevant heap Critical thinking is all but asleep Cause we're living every day, we're living every night In the USA of distraction The pathological pursuit of power and profit Drives everything in sight, not sure we can stop it Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top We've lost the power to think So we shop until we drop We're surveilled and monitored While they keep us all distracted So we never notice that our data has been extracted We're living every day, we're living every night In the USA of distraction All right has been put into motion our eyeballs seldom stray too far away from the mega monopolies that command the day diversity in media is gone 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 slowly fading out like a sad sad song we're living every day we're living every night in the usa of distraction The telegenic spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed out any room for social integrity. With profits to be made and minds to be molded, the media crushes the truth even when it's been scolded. It's books now more than ever that people need to read. Folks are hypnotized by their Twitter feed. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. of this neoliberal nightmare that cares more for Wall Street than anybody's health care. We've been bruised, battered, defunded, and dismantled. We've been diminished, infiltrated, manipulated, and manhandled. 
sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day, yeah. Well, we're living every night in the USA. A distraction. Where we're living every day. Living every night in the USA. A distraction. Where we're living every day. Where we're living every night. In the USA of distraction. That's right. Welcome back. Oh, we're, we're back. We're back. Judah Friedlander joins us, and I am having a minor technical problem here, so let me get organized here. Dan, are you there? I'm having, yes, do, do you, uh, is there any way you can help me here? I can't find, it's a mess here. Is it what, uh, huh? what are you looking for? I'm looking for the button that brings Judah in. And it just doesn't seem to be showing up. Do you see it on your end? Judah's turned his camera on. Is, is his camera on? Yep, I think he had something covering his camera until he was introduced. Yeah. Hey, Judah, I can't... Uh, oh, maybe I do it this way. Hang on. There we go. Okay. Sorry about that. I, did I keep you waiting, Judah? Uh, no, you did not. Good. David. Okay. Would Ju you like to? No. I, I'm, okay. I'm honored that you're here. Judah Friedlander, brilliant, brilliant comedian, you can see him doing stand-up on Zoom, right? You do live comedy shows. Yep. Judah Friedlander. show is judahfriedlander.com. It's pay what you want. 90-minute shows at least. Next shows are tomorrow, Friday, July 15th, 3 p.m. New York time. And then um, other times, if you're in other time zones. And then the one after that is this Saturday, July 16th, 9 p.m. East Coast time. Fantastic. JudahFriedlander.com. It's good to see you, my friend. I'm going to good. I'm going to get to it before you do. I, I had a realization. I'm a bad friend and I'm a bad human being. I'm a shell of a man. You sent me some emails and I didn't respond. And uh, and I do that to a lot of people. And I need to do better. I need to be a better friend. And I, I, you had sent me some nice notes and I didn't respond to them. And I apologize. David, anything you can do so I don't have to listen to that little speech you just gave. <laughs> would be great. I would rather you ignore every email I send you and never give me a speech like that again. No, there's something serious. There's something seriously wrong with me. I, I, I've no, there isn't. There my is. condolences. To, much love to you, dude. Thank my you. condolences to you. I can. It's just you know. No, there are calls that I you. need to make 
even before my own problems that I don't make. I, I, I'm, it's not healthy. Anyway, talk to me about your life. I know you pay attention to what's going on in the news and you're optimistic. I, all I do is create paralysis in this world and tell you how bad things are. But you are an eternal optimist. You, no matter what's going on, you always see the positive, right? You know, David, this America here that we live in, this is the number one democracy curious nation on the planet <laughs> right now, okay? <laughs> Earlier in the show today, you talked about us turning into a uh, banana republic. Mm -hmm. uh, not going to happen, David, okay? No. This has been a high fructose corn syrup republic <laughs> for over 30 years. We are not going back to bananas. We're number one in type two diabetes. Yes. Okay? This is. And shame on everyone watching this show right now and not going out there and getting COVID and spreading COVID to people. I yes. thought you guys were good Americans. We are number um, one in type two diabetes. They. Out of respect, it should be type one diabetes because we're, we're working one. on it. You know, we're not a perfect country, but right. um, we're striving to be a more perfect country, as our yeah. Constitution says. Yeah. yeah. Declaration of Independence. Um, you know, one of those. One of those. Yeah. The Declaration of Independence also has that phrase that everyone. Well, I should say that uh, rich uh, white landowning men um, <laughs> have the right to. Uh, the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. That's a phrase I don't like, the pursuit of happiness. It's like even in the Declaration of Independence, um, happiness is being chased by the cops. You know? <laughs> um, it's not good. I'm like, why is, why is it being pursued of happiness? What did they do wrong? <laughs> but I'm keeping safe, David. Good. I got all my guns vaccinated, so I'm keeping safe. Um, <laughs> got to be ready, David. The CDC is not doing its job, so you got you to do it yourself. Um, and there's still a baby food shortage. That, that's what you said, right? Yeah, there, from what I understand, yes. Yeah, 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 no surprise. Do you know why that is? You tell me. It's because we don't have enough cops. David. We need more cops. Um, if we just had more cops, I think everything would work out, you know. Um, I think only cops should be able to give abortions. I don't think doctors should. That That's should a cops. great idea. Um, yeah. I would. I think a lot of people would be in favor of abortion if it was performed. I, I, I think if we did that, we can we can get abortion relegalized if, mm -hmm. if if cops just just have <laughs> doctors wear police you know police costumes <laughs> and people like oh all right I guess this is okay this sounds this sounds like a good American procedure here. I think we solved it. I think we fucking I think, solved it. Yeah, too. yeah. And I think babies are hoarding baby formula. They drink too much. Mm. You know, cops mm. will arrest you if you drink too much. They should be arresting babies to see if they've had too much formula. Well, that's interesting. See, I didn't know that that's what it was. I thought, I thought we legitimately did not have enough baby food for babies. No, it's the babies. And if that's the case... If, if, if we really don't have enough food for babies, I say good. You know, I say good. Um, you know, we can't uh, we can't spoil these kids. And, um, you know, many, many kids and, you know, kids used to be able to 
you know, develop an eating disorder when they were maybe 10, 11, mm-hmm. 12, 13, or 14. Now kids are developing an eating disorder at like six months. You know? So <laughs> what I'm trying to say is you're never too young to hate your body. So, um, so I, think, I think these kids today are getting a head start on, on society. So Wait, and, and you should. If good you're, for them. You should have body dysmorphia if you're a baby. What, what's to be proud of? I, I call it diversity. I call it diversity. <laughs> I call it inclusivity, Um, (laughs) but um, now when I'm president, uh, the first thing I do, David, is I'm going to abolish the National Guard and I'm going to replace it with the Avant Guard. Mm, Um, That's fair. So if a riot breaks out, we just have a dance troupe show up. (laughs) uh, I think that'll be better for society than tear gassing everyone you know tear gas is uh illegal in uh international war yet it's legal domestically i didn't know that yes when the cops um you know so we're not allowed another reason we're number one another reason we're number one we're not allowed to use tear gas when we're invading a a foreign country it's a it's a war crime really what about reading mm-hmm, Charlotte's Web? a war web? crime here. What about reading yeah. Charlotte's Web to the enemy? Is that a... Now, tell me that story again. Is that where a spider dies or something? Yeah, I didn't want to ruin it for everyone. Yeah. I cried. Like a girl befriends a spider. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds cool. It's a beautiful story. I should reread that book. It's probably a great book. It, I it is. It. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. I didn't know that we're not allowed to use tear gas on the enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it makes you define well, who is the enemy. Maybe the enemy is the that shows you tells you a lot about the government. You know, if they if they're allowed to use it on us, but on other countries, they view us as the enemy. Maybe I we think, yeah, I think maybe you we, said that the part out loud that wasn't supposed to be said. Right. Very perceptive. Now, are you running for president? You've always threatened to to dip your toe into politics is i don't know if i'm gonna run um rumor has that i'm not allowed in the primaries and i'm gonna get a bye to the finals so i think that's pretty good um it all depends what happens um i think if the two i think if like well first of all we need more parties than two parties you know we we need you know we need it's um uh but are you running for uh, office you're opening yourself up because you have never been defeated. You are a world yeah. champion. Yeah. You've undefeated. never you've never lost anything. That's why I'm banned from running, because it's uh, they know I would win. <laughs> it's automatically stacked again. Mm-hmm. It's rigged just by your entering. Could you? I think if none of the candidates get more than 50 percent of the vote, they should all lose. None of them should be allowed. Right. And I think if the candidates tie, it should be decided by penalty kicks. <laughs> Works for sports. Well, if you run for office, would you ha- have a 50 state plan? Would you run in all 50 states, even though there's a distinct possibility? There are some. Well, the first thing I do when I'm president, the first thing I do when I'm president is Remember that guy who took off his shoe and threw it at George W. Bush? Yeah, the press conference. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to give him a sneaker deal. He's getting a (laughs) sneaker deal. 
why that guy does not have the biggest selling shoe on the planet, I don't know. <laughs> um, we're going to make that happen. Uh, the second thing I do when I'm president is I'm going to rank all 50 states. And the bottom five are getting relegated. What a great idea. Yeah. To rank all 50, to have brackets and have the states. They talk about a civil war. But to, to do it like the NCAA, to have brackets and have the states compete against each other in terms of tax revenue and freedom. and Just do it like every football league in every other country where there's the top pro league and the bottom teams at the end of the season get relegated to the second division. This is great. And, right. So the bottom five states, they go to Canada. They go to Canada, <laughs> the bottom five states. And then maybe Canada will be a little less cocky towards us. So. so there are certain states that don't measure up and they should be told, especially right. the takers. There, there are some yeah. states that pay less in taxes to the federal government than they mm -hmm. get from the federal government. So they mm -hmm. would be at the bottom, right? They'd be in the bottom and they should have less of yeah. a say, don't you think? Yeah. In, in, yeah. in, in government, if they're takers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like we're ruled by the takers. Seems, seems nothing. And we might have we might have too many states. We might have too many states. Yeah. No. You know, it wasn't always 50 states. Mm -hmm. And if you look at these Supreme Court originalists, you know, they're all about the original Constitution and all that stuff. You know, when this country started, we had 13 states. So. Right. If they're going to make if they're going to ban abortions, it should only be legal in 13 states. <laughs> you know, the other states, it shouldn't be legal. I mean, they're originalists, right? Wow. wow. So how can an originalist make any law for all 50 states? There were only 13 fucking states back wow. then. Wow. Wow. That's how I see it. That's you, how I see you it. You should run for Supreme Court. That's what you should. Do. I'm going to abolish the Supreme Court. That's the first thing we do. And we're just going to have a food court. <laughs> Everyone likes a food court. Nobody likes uh -huh. any kind of legal court. Nobody likes a legal court. No. Nobody likes it. I would do jury duty if it were a food court. Absolutely. Yeah. Great idea. Okay. That's a, you know what? That would be a great idea. I think more people would do. I think less people would try to get out of jury duty <laughs> mm -hmm. if it was for food court. Yeah. Yeah. You should actually run. Ideas. You you uh, you you should run. I, I would vote for you. I would. Might have to do it. Because you have the I'm gonna, Go ahead. No, go ahead. You have the sun in your face. That's how you win. You're an eternal mm -hmm. optimist. You're like Reagan, you're like Kennedy, Obama. I see you, and I'm reminded of the American spirit. It, it's a can. Reagan, Reagan was the best president from 1980 to 1988. <laughs> the, best the best one. Did you watch the uh, the Nancy Reagan uh, stamp unveiling? No. Oh, dude, you really? I didn't even know there's a Nancy Reagan stamp. Yeah, Jill Biden uh, presided over the unveiling. Uh, she was standing on one side of this giant stamp. And, you know, it's like a 
it's like a six-foot stamp at this presentation. Right. And then Louis DeJoy is standing on the other side, and it was this big praising ceremony about the Nancy Reagan stamp. Um, I Are, think they should have just said no to the whole thing, <laughs> but um, out of respect for Nancy Reagan. Um, I and think, I don't know how that stamp is going to fit on an envelope, but it was like six <laughs> feet big. So it's just, to me, just more bloated government waste, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and Nancy Reagan, I think no matter how much you lick that stamp, it stays dry. No matter what you do, there's nothing. Uh, David, you had to make it disgusting. I did have to make it disgusting. I apologize. You know what? I apologize. And by disgusting, I mean all sexual acts are disgusting. Exactly. By that. Yes. You know, humans are never supposed to have sex. It's disgusting. Yeah. Well, what would your policy be when it comes to sex? Since sex is disgusting. I think only cops should be allowed to have kids. <laughs> I think, um, you know, we got to turn this country around, David. It's really going in the wrong direction. I love this. The solution to everything is the cops. I love this. Uh-huh. Only cops should perform abortions. That's a great idea. Only cops should be allowed to have sex. Great, yeah. great idea. You have that would make phone. a great novel. That would make a great novel. Yeah. The, a real police state. That is, that's yeah. a true police state. Yeah. yeah. I mean, have it or don't, you know. Are do you people care touch? about justice or do they not? Yeah. Are, but are you in touch with the regular American? Because you've had so much success. You've never tasted fear. I mean, look at me. Look yeah. at me. I mean, it's just I mean, look, look at that. Your, 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 you know, your backdrop, it's regal. Mm-hmm. Can you relate to order? This is the new map of the United States. <laughs> right here, when I'm president. Because <laughs> that's the thing. People talk about we shouldn't have borders. And I'm like, you're right. So everyone can just, you know, make their own border. They can just uh-huh. move the tape however they want. You know? Right. And that would prevent a civil war if you woke up every day and you didn't know if I didn't know if I was in Connecticut, New Jersey, New York. It changed Mm -hmm. every day. There'd be no tribal loyalty. There'd be no civil wars. Yeah, I'm going to change the borders every day. Keep people on their toes. (laughs) Like a weather report. One day they're in Cleveland. One day they're in Guadalajara. (laughs) Pay attention, everybody. That would make a great, like a weather, like a meteorologist telling us Mm -hmm. what state is what. Like, we should be, like, people who live in New York should, we should be Mississippi. This would be a better country if the state of Mm -hmm. Mississippi had all these elite, you know, snotty. Yep. And breakfast would be a lot cheaper. Yes. At a a diner. Yeah. 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 Say what you want about Mississippi. Great breakfasts. Yeah. Great breakfasts. And where do you think you are most popular? You you do travel all over the country. Or you did travel before COVID. Where, where, where do you think your base is? Where do you think people really get you? Where do people tap into the Judah Friedlander spirit? David, I didn't know you were uh, an agent. I, I, I thought... Um, 
I don't, I don't know what's going on here. I have no idea. I know that it's a good question. I have no idea. David. I, I don't know these things. I'm just a role model. I'm just an athlete. I don't, I don't know these things. As a role model, an athlete, you've never tasted defeat. So can, what advice can you give to people, ordinary mortals? I worry that maybe you're out of touch with ordinary mortals since you've never tasted the, the losing end. That sounds exactly like someone who hates winners would say. <laughs> um, it's the wrong attitude. <laughs> and that's the attitude that's keeping America back. People hate winners, you're saying. Or some people hate winners. Some people do. Some people do. Here's the problem, David. Um, there's almost no gun laws in this country. Um, we have more nude laws than gun laws. So I say we just outlaw clothing mm -hmm. and then it will be a lot harder to hide a gun. And the country <laughs> will be a little bit safer. Concealed carrying an automatic rifle. You'll see it coming from pretty far away. No we'll concealed carry. That's a great idea. Although yeah. Chris Christie could probably hide a couple of AR 15s. I think. I, that I don't know. I'm not. A, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I've seen him naked. You have? Yes. Okay. So we're talking with Judah Friedlander. Everybody should go to judahfriedlander.com Friday, oh. July 15th at 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, 8 p.m. Great Britain time. You can watch him perform live. Mm. Now, do you do this via Zoom? Is that how it's done? It's on Zoom and then everyone can, uh, you know, they can have their camera on and their mic on if they want. So it can be interactive mm -hmm. or they can have it off, which is sort of like like if, if, if you come to the show and have your camera on and mic on, that's kind of like sitting in the first front few rows. Right. If you choose to have your camera off and your mic off, that's sort of like sitting to the back or to the side of a room right. you know, where you're not going to be goofed on. So, uh yeah, it works well. Yeah. So usually I do shows every Friday night, 9 p.m. Eastern. And then and it's pay uh, what you want. Pay what you want. Pay yeah, what pay you what want. You want. Mm. Amazing. What a great idea. Mm. It's the honor system. Mm -hmm. The way it well, should be. It's just, you know, I, I figure if people wanted to come to the show, great. And then you just pay whatever you want, you know, so. And the shows uh, are at least 90 know. minutes. Sometimes they run two two and a half hours and there are Sometimes, other yeah. and other comedians right you've had one or two comics yeah i usually have one or two comics coming on before me sometimes it's just me right um tomorrow which is friday i'll have at least one other comic on the show and then saturday i should have at least one other comic on the show also yeah and you've been doing this for close to two years it's yeah yeah two years yeah and how similar is it to live, you know, live standup? Does it, cause I kind of feel with my virtual studio audience, even though it's not the same as it, it, their mics are off, you can't hear them. I get enough of a jolt, but I, I do, do you miss the live audiences? Well, it is live because usually about half the crowd has their cameras and mics on. Right. So, so I, it's it's through the computers and internet, but it but it is live. So you know, I 
I'm hearing and seeing them and they can hear and see each other also and they can hear and see me. So to so um, go to judahfriedlander.com and you should all watch America is the greatest country in the United States. That's Judah Friedlander's Netflix special that you directed, I believe, as well, right? Yeah, I don't call it a Netflix special. It's a, I call it just a stand-up comedy performance film, and you can view it on Netflix. Okay. And, and, and the reason I say that is because um, it was made 100% independently, and then after it was finished, it was then licensed to Netflix where it streams. I so see. it wasn't something they produced, you know, they're showing it. Mm -hmm. So that's why I don't call it a Netflix special. Um, now, what's the and initially in the initially it said it was a film by Judah Friedlander and they would not allow that that they would not budge on. They said it has to say a Netflix comedy original. And I just want people to see it. I don't want to do that. But that was like the one change I made to it. So I made a new title card, swapped out the old one, put that one in. Right. So, uh, yeah. What's the longest stand-up show you've done on mm. Zoom? On Zoom? Yeah. Probably like just my set alone, maybe two and a half hours, two hours, something like that. And how do you measure how well it's going? By the laughs? or I, I think it's kind of how it would be measured if it was, you know, at a venue where you you so I I don't know. L let me know what you think. But it's it would be like, you know, your perception of how you liked what you did, you know, how you like your material, how you like your performance and how the audience enjoyed it. You know, um, do you think a, a comedian a, just start? We, we have three more minutes left. Do you think okay. a, a comedian just starting out only performing on Zoom? will develop the necessary comedy chops or have you done enough of the clubs to know how it's supposed to go? Can you, can you come up the ranks without ever being in front of a live studio, a live I, I think probably, but I, I, I think, you know, with comedy, you really have to, to get, I guess the term would be like stage legs, legs, mm -hmm. meaning you can, um, perform anywhere in front of any type of audience and and do well you, you know um you know you figure it out you know uh so i i think it's important to do every single type of show and i think even like before zoom shows if a comic is only doing performing in front of audiences that is like exactly their ideal you know type of person or demographic to perform to that ultimately can make them uh, a weaker comic overall. Uh, right. So, yeah, uh, I think you can get good just doing it on Zoom, but but it is important to do all kind. You know, take take the terrible gigs, not just the sweet easy gigs. Because right. if you just do the sweet easy gigs, it's not going to make you tougher. You know, right? But if you end or up more like, experienced, if if you end up like me, where 
there are no sweet, easy gigs where every gig is tough. <laughs> no layups. No no, yeah. You go, you know what? Maybe this is uh, how to beat up anybody is one of your books. And if raindrops, United, if the raindrops united. If, yeah. Yeah. What is that about? That's a book of cartoons I did um, and drawings. It's about 200 cartoons and drawings I did, mostly single panel. But there's like a there's a mini comic book in there. Uh, it's called Gentrification Man. It's a <laughs> satire on the corporatization. It's the first superhero who's finally standing up for the rights of corporations and billionaires because they've never had one to defend them. Right. And uh, so it's yeah, a lot of it is uh, satire on um, the corporatization of uh, of like New York um, and then, you know, cartoons on fascism, on you know, uh, all, all kind, of, a lot of a lot of heavy topics. Um, Great. So, go to yeah. judahfriedlander.com, Live stream his stand-up shows every week, Friday, July fifteenth, eight p.m. British time, three p.m. New York time. Thank you, Judah. Come back more often. Thanks please. so much, man. Great See job. you soon. Great and, job. Uh, Bless uh, everyone, you and your family. So Thank much you. love. Thanks Thank so you. much. Thank you. Let us now go to, well, I go, I think we're going to the, are we in camp? Where are we? The, the Hershenfelds are together. Father and son join us. Yes, hello. We're, uh, yes, we're in, hello. The, in the inner sanctum. Now, are, are you? You, are you in Massachusetts or New York? New York. Ah, can I can I ask the doctor to lean in so we, we can get full sound? Is that you can ask anything you want? Thank you, thank you. So, father and son, did you have dinner today? What did you What did you do? Uh, we're having smoothies. You're, you're having smoothies. How are you doing, David? Uh, you know, I'm worried that I'm doing okay. Thank you for uh, asking. Uh, I I feel unplugged. I, I do feel like uh, I don't have energy. I I, I feel kind of and uh, and the other thing that I keep thinking about is, well, time is moving and uh, who's up next? Well, I guess that would be me. That would be uh, that's a little. That's the feeling with mortality. It's like I'm sorry. Escalator, and when you get to the top of the escalator, utility like an escalator. Everyone's moving up the escalator, and the person at the top, they just go up. It's an escalator to oblivion. So the top <laughs> fall off. So right. then you realize, oh boy, I'm next on the yeah the escalator. Yeah, it's right. taking me up there. Right. By the way, I wanted to point out something. <clears throat> it's an interesting image you said that you feel unplugged because our very first relationship as humans is through the umbilical cord to our mothers which is a sort of a plug so it's not it's not without meaning that that would be the image that right that uh, that's that's my thought i had the same thought yeah yeah it, but, not knew, but he knew better than to say it <laughs> i i had one freudian I don't know if I should share this. I'm probably going to regret. I, I would tell people to skip ahead a minute 
this is probably I'm probably going to. So uh, I, w I was when my father passed and my mother passed, I was there. I, I witnessed it. And uh, <clears throat> um, when when my dad died, I looked I went, he's gone. I, I looked at the body. I apologize for bringing this up. I do. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I looked I looked at my father the minute he was gone. I went, he's gone. That's it. You know, no, no, that is, that's just the luggage. No interest. I walked out of the room and that was it. My mother, on the other hand, I declared in front of everybody, that's not her, that she's gone. But I had a little, and I did think of Dr. Hershenfeld. I thought that I, I was, I, I swear, I'm telling the truth. I had a, I said, what's interesting, I'm not, I'm saying that's just her luggage, but I had trouble letting go of the body. And I think there was something edible to that. Well, it could also just be a, like luggage. It's hard to say <laughs> like a piece of luggage. It's also hard to even if you know you're not traveling soon, you just keep it in the closet. You might. So there could be there's been a luggage thing. I also I have bags I haven't used in decades, but you, you know you never know. It, it, you were gonna say. I I, I, I was gonna say, yeah. I was gonna say that um, it makes sense. Because your most intimate bodily experiences, leave out this edible schmedible business, your most intimate primitive bodily experiences are with your mother. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I realized uh, I got to a certain age where I was lucky, where I, you know, I was pretty close to my mother and. I got to realize how, how how so much of what I have done <clears throat> was for her approval, for her love. Uh, you know, uh, I, you know, it's uh, yeah. That's how it works. But this unplugged feeling is going to be with you for a year. Really, I'm making predictions. I'm making predictions. <laughs> However, I, I would like to move on to another subject that it's very much related to what you just said, that so much of what you have done in your life is for her approval. Um, and or for your father's approval. I don't know, but they had all of their heavy hitters on moderated by Rachel, but everybody else. And they brought up a number of times um, in relation to like Mark Meadows. I mean, that he's a, a, a bit of a jerk and a, a nothing type of a person, but nobody would have predicted that he would have gone on to sedition. <laughs> what is that all about? And then they met the same thing with the, the other, the, the Berg or Bork or whatever the hell his name is. They, they came up with that same question with a number of people. They were terrible people. They were dishonest. 
But what made them go this extra mile to really want to bring down the country? And the, the, the answer suddenly occurred to me, and it's what you just said. It was a transferential wish to be loved by a powerful father figure. The same thing that makes people go to church or synagogue or the mosque, that you're going to have this imaginary father figure love you and protect you and take care of you. That's why I bought him a smoothie tonight. (laughs) (laughs) These smoothies are like $12 each. It's insane. And then with the tip, it's an insane price for a smoothie, but it's all about that. It's the same reason why Meadows committed sedition. That's why I got the smoothie. There, there is something missing in their psychological development. Like Kellyanne Conway had daddy issues. I think her father abandoned her at a very early age. So even though she was a lawyer and clearly uh, better educated than Donald Trump, she still needed a strong father figure to give her approval. Who would love her. Yeah. Who would exactly. love her. Yeah. And it, and somebody like Trump, who's a predator, do you think he he innately knows how to do this? Yes, innately not this is not conscious. This is absolutely he's too stupid to do this kind of thing consciously. But it it he just feels it that this is the, this is how to do it. It's a kind of uh, genius, so to speak. It is. It is. There is a genius to him. It's fascinating. It's almost inspirational that that nothing stops him, that he can pick up a phone, call a low level White House functionary right before he or she's about to testify and say, just be cryptic enough to make it menacing. And, and I love you. A lot of it, or he'll relay a message, you know, Donald Trump loves you. Well, that, that's not... And be watching. And he'll be watching. Yeah. Maybe that's old school mafia. <laughs> that, that it is, yes. Where you, you never say anything, never write anything down, and never say overtly, if you testify against me, I'll... I'll destroy you. It's I love you. I, I yeah. love you. Why would you? It, it's I almost genius. You. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go. Oh. Back. Yes, go ahead. I wanted to tell a tale of uh, what, what, what were you going to say? Dave? No, no. You, let's hear your tale. My tale is very weird. So I was on the subway on the way to a covid test for a TV job. So I had my mask on and I crack the window open to get some airflow and then a woman closes the window she doesn't say anything to me she closes it so i opened it and then she said to me i'm trying not to get into any beef with anybody but i have to test negative in order to work so i said i'm sorry i have to stay healthy she said if you want to stay healthy ride a bike don't ride the subway So I said, that's a fine idea. But then she she kept she kind of kept at it. And then I said, listen, I just you know, I have to test negative. And she said, 
this is a this, this is a verbatim. This is a quote from a stranger to me on the subway because no one's wearing masks on the subway anymore. This is why it's an issue. So this woman's standing right next to me on a crowded train, not wearing a mask. She has just closed the window. I've opened it, and she we're, she says this to me. She says, "You." This is a quote. You are not important to me. <laughs> Which I thought was incredible, like a stranger really cutting to the heart of the matter of the the egocentric, sociopathic way that people relate to each other with a zero sense of civic mindedness or humanity. She just but she she said it. She said it. Explicitly. Was she young? Was she how old? How old? She was youngish. She was youngish. But she said, you're not important to me. And. I thought, and I said to her, well, that's fine. But I, well, I was thinking like, that's probably how it should be. I, I'm not, I shouldn't be that important to you, but right. you know, it was just bizarre. Cause that is what everyone is saying. Right. I refusing to wear a mask on the subway now, even though it's great. Cause so it was just an interesting thing I wanted to share. And we're, we're, we're go ahead, doctor. You were going to say something. Only that I would have thrown her out the window. That would have been <laughs> <laughs> it's not uniquely American. We're seeing this in European countries that have social safety nets that almost make them socialist. The selfishness is not endemic to well, the. My, my, my friend just flew to Mexico for his mother passed away a lot. Ten days ago, also he flew there for the wake and the funeral. Oh, I thought he had he to get. I thought he just had to get out of town. Until things settle down. Put the body in the East River and he went to LaGuardia. <laughs> no, he, um, he said in JFK Airport, no one wearing a mask. He lands in Mexico. Everyone wears a mask now in Mexico, including outdoors. They're just aware of it and taking care of each other. Oh, really? Yeah, so, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Tell your dad the story. I, I can't stop thinking about this. Tell your dad the story about in the car with the 100 year old aunt. Oh, no, this is uh, your you know, this story. Uh, Tell the story Sadie. again. I can't stop thinking about this. It's my grandmother. Yeah, it's his mother's mother in the parking lot in Miami. Oh, I'm, there. I'm like four. I'm like 12 story. years old because I'm 12 years old. I think your iris was driving, and then next to her was uh, Sadie. Sadie, the hundred-year-old. She pays the two, the ten-dollar, two dollars. No, well, it was probably ten. Whatever it was, it was eight. It was too much. It was the, it was like nineteen eighty-four or something. And she, as her, as her daughter, or as her daughter hands the money uh, to the toll taker, she, the hundred-year-old. She leans over and she says, choke on it, mister. <laughs> yeah. Choke on it, mister. So th th this is your, gr this is the doctor's grandmother. My grandmother. My okay. great-grandmother. Yeah, so I, I can't stop. A blessed memory. A blessed memory. She knew she was being funny, right? That was the question. I didn't think so either. She was not being funny. Actually, the story is a little longer than that, namely that they drive into this parking lot. They pay their two bucks. They drive around. There's no empty spot. So they go back to the exit and they and the guy says two dollars, please. And my 
cousin says, but we couldn't find a parking space. And the guy says, I don't make the rules here. If you want me to lift that bar, give me $2. So Sadie digs into her purse, takes out the $2, passes it over Iris to the guy and says, choke on <laughs> that's, that's the whole story I, I, let we me have to we have to ask ask iris we'll check with yeah iris. i was there but uh i do you think sometimes we don't realize how funny our loved ones are because we're so mortified by their behavior that they're acting sure. out yeah. it's only years later that it becomes Funny. Right. As, as the time equals comedy. Yeah. But I, I, I don't mean to belabor this, but don't you think Sadie. Labor. Don't you think she knew it was funny? Uh uh-uh. I don't think she had a sense of humor. I didn't know her that no. well, but she, she was not a barrel of monkeys. <laughs> okay. I, I think sometimes we don't realize because sometimes if we're extra funny. Stop. Go ahead. You're right sometimes, but not in this case. In this case, she meant choke on it. Okay. There has been a pushback as to how bad things are. There was a story in the New York Times where somebody said, are things really this bad? And I feel guilty bringing this up because... Half the country can't come up with a thousand dollars for a medical emergency. Eviction is looming. We lost a million to to covid. Uh, What's left of our democracy could be over by November. There there is no question that. uh, The country is broken. Our government isn't functioning. And also, abortion's illegal, so it's going to be wall-to-wall babies. You're going to have to <laughs> you're going to be walking down the sidewalk, just stepping on babies. They're going to be everywhere. That being so said. So what are you asking? Yeah. I, I keep thinking, I'm worried that one day we're going to miss these times. That... That if you look at my my mother who lived through the the Great Depression and right. World War II, that was pretty bad, right? Yeah, uh, she lived uh, through uh, my stand up years, uh, World War II, uh, <laughs> McCarthyism, uh, right? So, Father Coughlin, yeah, the fear. The, the, the Menudo Menudo when I when I sang with Menudo and she was so worried that they were going to find the Bee Gees. the Bee Gees. Yes. No, I, but yeah. listen, I think you're right. We are going to look back. It could be just two years from now. We're going to look back at this with great nostalgia when if we have the the return of Donald and uh, the end of the democracy. Yeah. That's not how I see it. I think there is, I think this is sort of a Marxian concept, if I'm not mistaken. But there's, 
something happens and things start going that way. And then there's a reaction to it. And we don't know what the reaction is going to be. Maybe the reaction is going to be that the Republicans are going to be decimated over the next two years. Could be. We don't know. Right. You, you said so something I, that, that has stuck with me. And when I look around and deal with other people's medical issues, that if you said, I think you said, if you're college educated, the healthcare system in America works pretty good. Even if you're broke and have no money, if you have a college degree or you're, uh, you have your wits about you, the, the, the medical system, it, it's work. You got to stay on top of it, but it'll work for you. That's what, that's what you said, I think. Yeah, I, and obviously you need a little bit of money also. Right. Or some insurance. Right. I, ju I just had an example of it this week. Of a patient of mine had a serious issue. There are very few specialists in this area. The family was given an appointment for next March. And the wife is a little bit indomitable. And uh, she kept plugging and plugging and especially befriending the secretaries of some of these doctors. And the next thing you know, she got an appointment for this afternoon. Wow. Right. They've had it already. Right. So you have to have some smarts. You have to, I guess, be a little entitled. You have to... Um, have the idea that, uh, yeah, it's possible to change things. Right. And then, and, the, and, and things. but then there are the people who it's one, it's just a series of unfortunate incidents that are in, become increasingly debilitating and they f fall through the cracks and it, and it's just it's more bad luck that snowballs into m more bad luck. And if you're, you know, a person of color, if you're LGBTQ, uh, if you're a woman and, and you know, money's or, or white and it, it gets it gets overwhelming. And I think uh, more and more Americans feel unlucky that that they just can't catch a break that there's it, it's just this persistent persistence of uh being underpaid undervalued underappreciated and the threat of financial ruin one or two paychecks away if things don't work out i think that's how most yeah. of not most but a lot and it's demoralizing. Right. We've been demoralized that even people who are doing OK uh, are demoralized. 
I'm I'm less uh, optimistic about this than than the doctor. I think it is most people. I think it's the vast majority of people who are in the boat you're describing. Yeah, and they're either just barely surviving or they have a tiny cushion. Right. And I think there are a lot of people who are running on fumes on a sense memory of what this country once was, what the promise was. And if you're of a certain age, I think people my age, if they're scraping by, uh, if you're scraping by and you're, you know, my age, you're, you're still holding out hope that somehow the system is going to get fixed. But uh, I don't know if I don't know if the system gets fixed. I, I I have a feeling the way we're heading is into a state's right utopia of warlords where people in will talk about cities and counties where people are doing incredibly well, as though it's a European country. And then the people who are living in another part of America, they might as well be, you know, it would be the difference between Belarus and uh, Sweden. Same continent, completely different freedoms and economics. Uh, I think that's where we're heading in America. Some people will claim it's fantastic. And then. uh, Hasn't it been that way? To some degree, for a very long time. Yes and no. I think because there, because the federal government was mowing down the individuality of each state, there there was this holdout of promise that everybody could achieve what people in Bel Air are getting, uh, and I think the more we devolve back to the states, uh, more and more people are going to be left on their own. You know, get the get the government out of my life. Okay, uh, now you're on your own. And if you're unlucky, it's you're going to get a lot unluckier without a big government to to protect you. Uh, See the movie Winter's Bone. No, what is that? It's a wonderful movie. Um, it was the first movie of that young woman actress, yeah. Hilary Swank, is that? Whoever she was. No, it's that girl from The Hunger Games, that uh, actress. It's about the Ozarks. The, the what? And the Ozarks. real poverty and real ignorance. And a family of meth cookers. That's how they made their living. So on one hand, there was this desolation and ignorance and poverty, which which was real. But on the other hand, there was a portrayal of a truly loving, mutually supportive family. Um, You know, which made me think, well, yeah, financial security is certainly important, but it's not the only thing that's important in life. Some people have a 
a, a decent, good life, with, even without it, even without the education, even without a, a fairly new car in the garage. Um, let me make you an assignment for okay. next time and if you can watch Winter's Bone. I, I will do that. And yeah. we could talk, talk about it. Yeah, yeah, I would love that. Yeah. Well, before you go, what are you reading? And let's find out what Ethan's doing with his comedy. I think what the doctor was just suggesting, he was being maybe a little subtle about it, is everyone should get into the drug business. <laughs> Or moonshine, <laughs> if you can't do um, I haven't been reading anything. I got back into that whole thing of just scrolling and reading the news. And you know this game Wordle, which is which is interesting. But then my friend Kit in LA turned me on to Mantle. So it's Wordle, but you're not Word, and then it tells you how whether you're moving in, whether you're getting warmer or colder towards the meaning of the word. Oh. Just a vast of words and it's weirdly doable it's very hard it makes your brain hurt in a very particular way i recommend samantle okay um, and everybody should go by today is now by doctor today is now today, today is now in fact we're about to shoot something uh the doctor's going to appear in it the director's on his way over here he's going to be a uh he's going to give a testimonial right now Today is film. now by, by Dr. Uh, Samuel, Samuel Benjamin. But he's not yes. a real, does he have a, a doctorate? He does not, but he almost has a doctorate in several fields. So <laughs> if, you do the, if you do the math, that's like one doctorate. He's what they call all but dissertation, which means he did the coursework, <laughs> but never finished the dissertation. Mostly because of problems with his penmanship and with the ribbon on his typewriter. It wasn't because of any problems with his th thinking or his abilities or his uh, work ethic. Right. And, and, and what is his title with the New York American Institute of Eclectic Modality Therapy? What is his? He's the chief emotional officer of the New York <laughs> American Academy. <laughs> He's the founder, creator and chief emotional officer. Yeah. OK. Everybody. New York American. Yeah. Do me a favor. Go by Today Is Now. It's Based only available down. through Amazon, right? Fortunately, uh, Dr. Benjamin believes very strongly that you should support your local bookseller, but his book is only available at Amazon. <laughs> so uh, one of many hypocritical things about this guy. But <laughs> support your local bookseller, but buy his book on Amazon. It's available $14 for the hardcover, $7 for the paperback. And, uh, and give I'll it a good it review. Right. And when, when, when are you signing books? Yeah, give it a review or a bad review. Oh, we had the, the book signing two nights ago um, and uh, it turned into a riot. It was like it was like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. It was there was swooning. There was ambulances. It was incredible. Fantastic. What are you reading, Dr. Hershenfeld? The Odyssey by Homer. Sweet. It, it, Beautiful. It is fabulous. It is fabulous. Fabulous. I recommend it to your all of your five listeners. Yes, all five. And is is, is it the Fitzgerald translation? Yes, the Fitzgerald. Exactly. It's which is the one I read in high school. Right. So it feels a little familiar. It is a beautiful, beautiful uh, story.
Yeah. I'm not going to read it. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the Netflix series. <laughs> <to be honest. laughs> and what are you reading, Ethan? Um, there's a, a Japanese novel called uh, The Woman in the Purple Skirt. I don't have anything to say about it. It's a novel I'm in the middle of, but I've been in the middle of it for a long time. I've just been reading the news. Good. Come back. Yeah. We'll come back next week. And what is the name of the movie I'm supposed to watch? Winter's Bone. I'll, I'll, I'll email it to you. Winter's Bone. Winter's Bone. Thank you so much. And everybody. Pay attention, David. Pay attention. Okay. I'm trying. Pay attention. I'm, I'm trying. I'm writing it down. I'm writing it down. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you so much. The Hershenfelds. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst. Ethan Hershenfeld is a brilliant, brilliant comedian. You can watch his work on YouTube. Right now, go stream Thug, Thug, Jew, and more importantly, buy Today Is Now on Amazon. You get a special dispensation from me. Normally, I don't approve of people shopping on Amazon, but I am making an exception in the case of Today Is Now, written by Ethan Hershenfeld's alter ego, Dr. Samuel Benjamin. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. And I think we're going to do a song, and I'm going to look into what's going on with uh, the quality of our connection. Uh, Emil, are you there? Yes, I am, David. Hi, how are you? Very good. Before uh, I'm going to check the connection, but uh, can you turn your video on for one second? Yep. Turn it your says, I, I turned it on, but it says you've stopped me. There you go. Oh, there it is. There it is. Okay. So what do you think? Is the connection good or was it just the Hershenfelds? What do I, I, look- can, I, can, I can tell you that I saw the Hershenfelds freezing as well. So it was on their you did see them freezing. Yes, right. sir. Okay. Thank you. And when are we doing Stump the Humps? Um, I think not tonight. Oh, okay. It wasn't on the schedule, so I didn't prepare one. Oh, it was on the schedule, but you didn't prepare one. Well, it was not on the schedule. Oh, okay. All right. Well, if you feel like joining us, you're more than welcome. Let me check our connection let's play a song from uh the brilliant uh uh am i am multitasking here dr my uh, professor mike steinell and when we come back we will talk to my old friend mr emil guillermo office hours every friday night at 8 p.m you're listening to the david feldman show and we will be right back Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Woolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw Bell novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better. 
with a touch of Tourette's, I'm traveling late. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Vepsin salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket I get a chill, I'm traveling light Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender A fifth of tequila in case I go on a bender My attorney's number in case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light Expensive wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree. I like to keep my options open, don't you know? A shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies list. We're back. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Joining us, that is Professor Mike Steinel. I wish I were he. Joining us is Emil Guillermo, great friend of mine, longtime friend, host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. 
and he is a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And thank you to Dan in our newsroom, Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, Yale Law School. It's amazing. You know, when you read when you, when you read these Supreme Court decisions, you think, how craven could Clarence Thomas possibly be? He went to Yale Law School. Well, so did Stuart Rhodes, the head of the John Birch Society, Welch, Harvard Law School. They have us brainwashed into believing that these hyper-educated people are not capable of stupidity or destroying the world. Al contraire, the people who destroy the world come from these, 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 these schools, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Princeton. Uh, Columbia. I'm sorry? Columbia. Uh, not familiar with that. <laughs> yeah, well. Uh, I know the country, Columbia University. Yes. Columbia, actual country. <laughs> uh, hey, you know. The Clintons went to Yale Law School. Yes, as well. they did. Yes, they did. All right, let's talk about Sri Lanka. Where is Sri yeah. Lanka? You know, if you stop people, th this is sort of like typical uh, to test American ignorance or knowledge of geography. But anytime there's any kind of world story, Ukraine, Sri Lanka, I mean, if you stop people, if they could pick it out, this, this could be a, like a Jay Leno bit, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think they could pick it out? I mean, where is Sri, Sri Lanka? Is it next to the Philippines? I mean, you know it's in the south of Asia somewhere. What do you think? I have you... to admit that uh, I would have trouble locating Sri Lanka uh, I, I be, I'm a little brain dead right now. Uh, uh, it, it, and and I, I understand. And I, uh, by the way, I, I do want to offer my condolences. For being brain dead. I, I think of yeah. Sri Lanka as an island, right? Yes, you're close. You're close. You're close. And it's near. The island is near. I would say India and I would say near India. Where are the Tamil Tigers from? The Tamil Tigers. I don't know where the Tamil. That's like a soccer team, right? The Tamil yeah. Tigers. I don't know where they're from. They speak Tamil, so they're probably from India. Here, here's the thing. You're, I, you're sort of I, right. I, I, as I, my recollection, I, I know yes. that they're, I know that they've had something like a coup where the prime minister has fled. My, I, I, I maybe maybe I'm wrong, but there are Muslims and Hindus living yeah. in India, and there has been a an exodus from Sri Lanka to Bangladesh of and I I'm, because I'm brain dead I can't rem I'm ashamed to tell you I can't remember. Well, that's I, the, the important thing is, and the only reason I want to mention it to to our audience because I know most people are saying Sri Lanka. Why do we care? Why do we? For the last five days, this thing has been been blowing up, and finally, some real action happened today when the the prime minister who was ousted uh, 
he he sent an email saying he resigned. He he left for Singapore. That, that the significance of the last few days is that essentially we have people power. People upright. Well, first of all, to get to the basic question, Sri Lanka is just under India. It's an island nation. Uh, when you were saying an island, I was going to say the island really is next to Manhattan because the largest area of Sri Lankans in the United States is in Staten Island. Really? Yeah. Stat, Stat, I mean, I, I know there's like 60,000 Sri Lankan Americans, and most of them came after the Sri Lankan Civil War. And and this is well before, you know, the, the, the problems they've had now. In fact, there was a kind of a renaissance in Sri Lanka. They were doing well, and then things fell apart. Does it remind you of another country that's having some economic problems? And what happened was they had people, people just went crazy. They occupied um, the president, the, the palace there. They, you know, there, there's some uh, unusual shots of normal people in places where they were shut out. They, the, 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 the family fled, the official family, first family fled. And now, uh, you know, we, we will have to wait and see. The military is threatened uh, to, 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 to take order if people don't disperse. But I think this is so far peaceful people power. That's the, the lesson in, in Sri Lanka. But uh, as I said, it's, it's really funny that a lot of Sri Lankans in the 70s and 80s, they came to America and they settled in Staten Island. I think, I think the place is called Tompkinsville. Hmm. There's a place right by the ferry. And there, of the 8,000 Sri Lankans in New York, most of them are there in what they call Little Sri Lanka, in Staten Island. So, what does okay. Pete Davidson and and uh, uh, Colin Jost uh, have in common with the Sri Lankans? You know, they love Staten Island. They love Staten Island. Big Buddhist, pop, mostly it's a mostly Buddhist population, right? Uh, you know, I I don't I don't know the exact you know breakdown in terms of uh, the. Uh, you know, the, the, the religion. Um, but I, I will say that, that those in America who came here, they fled, they're sort of in exile. They, and they, they, they settled in Staten Island because that's where the fir very first Sri Lankans came. They came, they were looking for that kind of suburban sort of, you know, not very citified uh, sort of thing. They, they, they uh, settled there. And one family um, this is the pattern for a lot of Asian immigration. One family is drawn by other families. Actually, it's all immigration, pretty much. They settle by families. And when the original family guy uh, was there in Staten Island, when he left to go to Texas and Houston in 1979, he, he wrote down that he was related to about maybe 60, 70 percent of all the Sri Lankans who, who came to America hmm. in Staten Island. So anyway, it's interesting for, for someone like me who looks at the Asian American population, number one, to see that this is part of the great diversity of Asian America, that, you know, 60,000 uh, you know, Sri Lankans are here. And they all are in that subcategory of South Asian, which would include Indian, which would include Pakistani Americans, 
Um, you know, when people talk about the Asian American umbrella, which includes the South Asians. And um, I talked about it uh, today to some friends because they didn't understand. They didn't realize, you know, well, you know, what about uh, how many, where are all the Sri Lankans in America, New York, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C.? Right. 60,000. So anyway, somebody, I, somebody it, in the ch- I, I'm, I know I'm fried. Somebody in the chat room said Peter Griffin is Sri Lankan, Basque, nine. Very good. I couldn't remember. That's how burnt out I am. I couldn't remember when you said the original family guy. Somebody yeah. said Peter Griffin is Sri Lankan. <laughs> Excellent. Very good. Yeah. yeah. I, I know. So I'm, it, I know I'm fried when I can't come up with the name Peter Griffin. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I knew when I said it, as it came out of my mouth, the family guy, people were going to say, huh, yeah, that family? All right, so let's talk about robots and, and the role that PETA uh, plays in protecting robot rights. We're, we're, getting pretty cl- we're getting pretty close to using autonomous weapons. I noticed that the American, yeah. uh, the military, they're having trouble finding recruits. Not sure moving forward, we're going to be relying too much on human beings to fight our wars. The new model is send weapons to other countries. It's more profitable than sending soldiers. And eventually those weapons will be autonomous. They'll be robots, killer robots. What is the U.N. saying about killer robots? Well, they are having a meeting, right? Well, not right now, but in a couple of weeks by the end of the month. And there are people in Washington pushing for hard regulations on what will happen. You know, they want to have new rules if they're going to be robots. And when we're talking about robots, we're talking about not necessarily the sci-fi kind of Terminator kind of uh, warring robots, but even something like the... uh, the weapons like the switchblade, mm-hmm. they have a little, they have a, a thing that turns them into autonomous weapons. And, and when you say autonomous, be- it's using AI and they decide when to fire the weapon, not a drone operator. Not a human being. Right. Right. Not, not, not a human. And so they, they. Self-killing this is the, cars. The real, right. This is the real fear. The real fear is They've got some of these already in Ukraine. And if the Russians start using autonomous weapons, then, you know, then that'll get people all, you know, uh, excited about this future. And this is why there are people in Washington, D.C. who are looking to try to regulate this through the U.N. Uh, There's something they call it the the Directive 3000.09 which is supposed to be like a, a, a you know a a code for how these uh, killer robots are used but of course who do you think is against this who do you think is against regulations on the use of these kind of weapons america well no i think america wants or certain aspects or groups within america are looking for the regulations and are hoping that they come they're successful at the un but it's really russia and a lot of people are looking at Russia if they're going to use them at, you know, in the current uh, war in Ukraine. One of the things about the war, you know how the war goes sort of in and out. It's like a wave. 
you know, we pay attention, we don't pay attention. We pay attention, we don't pay attention. Now we're suddenly paying attention because um, the the this big strike, um, you know, some like twenty people, civilians dead. Now we're paying attention, and it it coincides with this big meeting coming up at the the UN to discuss what we're gonna what we're gonna do with these uh, with these automatic or autonomous weapons. And like I said, there are switchblades, the, the weapon known as the switchblade, which is over there now. I you know so, so I I think they have a switch that you can make them autonomous. But they have been they're, they're being supplied to Ukraine now. And uh, who knows if the Russia gets this is them. where we're this is where warfare is heading in about 10 years. Yeah, I like it the old fashioned way, you know, the British way where you line up and then you get your musket and you kneel down and they say, ready, aim, fire. Right. I like that. I didn't like it when the colonizers were or the colonists were like running around right. and like screwing. I like the British way. You know? we're, we're seeing uh, I think it's the Bo- Boston. It's a company called Boston where they have these robotic dogs that look pretty lifelike. And you can use them now to <clears throat> uh, defuse a bomb. We're going to be use more and more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. robots to go into fires to rescue children. We're going to use robots to then march on our enemies. And we're going to say, hey, it's better than filling the, the Veterans Affairs hospitals with live human beings. What, what What's wrong with robots? It'll be sold to us as what's wrong with robots. And it's going to be everything science fiction warns us about. And then yeah, some, I, I agree. I, I, I know where you're going and I, I feel like we need war where people fight wars. It's not a war unless people fight war. People, we need to put the life back into war. Don't you By think? By the way, we, the, yeah, the, uh, the, the threat of autonomous robots Probably yeah. safer than robots that are manned by somebody stateside. I think robots need to take responsibility for themselves. Yeah. I, I you know, I think they need to talk to, what's that guy, Dr. Samuel Benjamin? They need yeah. to talk to him. The robots have to come into their moment and, and take responsibility for what they do. And we're going to be humans. We're going to be yeah. told that we have to have robotic soldiers because the enemy is developing them. And if we fall behind, then we'll be take, we'll be talked into it. And then soon the, the level yeah, of yeah. The, the terrorism, the terrorism we're going to be living with because of autonomous weapons. Yeah. It's going to be. And, and the great, the phrase is going to be no boots on the ground. It's going to be no bots on the ground. No bots no, on no the bots. ground. No, no bots. bots. No bots. Yeah, it's, if, it's if really. You, it, if you like Twitter, you'll love autonomous war. That's uh, the way we're. Well, headed. everything, everything is remote control. Look, yeah. we're together. You're in New York. I'm in California. Everything is remote. It's going to just keep going. It's just going to keep going in this yeah. way. We're, we're less human. We have less human contact. And we're more about just uh, 
you know, remotely yours. Right? Okay. Or, and well, that, that, that's what the other problem. And I, I love animals, but we do yeah. use animals as a substitute for human beings. Dogs. Everybody should adopt a dog and a cat. But they're not a replacement. Yeah. They're not a replacement for human touch. Four thousand beagles. Yeah, the four thousand. And I mentioned this because uh, you might have seen stories on the Today Show, AP, New York Times recently about these four thousand be beagles that a breeding facility. And this isn't like breeding for like companions, companionship. This is a facility. It's called Invigo, and they were breeding dogs in Vigo in a place called Cumberland, Virginia, 300 acre facility, 5,000 dogs. They've been breeding dogs for over six, almost 60, 60, over 60 years, breeding dogs for laboratories and research. And that's when PETA found out people were, were whistleblowers are coming forward saying, you know, they're not taking care of these dogs. There's like 5,000 dogs in this facility. And so PETA tried to help uh, the USDA, went in, sided them in 2020, did nothing. PETA went in in 2021 and did an undercover investigation. And they found out that the company was lying. The company was not doing well by these dogs. There were uh, more than 300 dogs dead. This is at Invigo. And, and, and the USDA found the same thing, but they didn't take the next step by trying to do something about it, like shutting them down. And PETA found 300, more than 300 puppies, puppies dead. They found uh, beagles being deprived of food. This is mothers, and mothers and their babies, uh, mothers mm. being deprived of food after birth. I mean, just think, no veterinary care, all this documented on tape. You can go to PETA.org and, and see. The, Anybody the arrested? Anybody arrested? Well, here's what happened. The, the investigation, undercover investigation that any investigative journalist in a newspaper would be proud of. In fact, they did a companion piece at the Washington Post where they took the PETA investigation. But they, uh, they went to the Virginia legislature which went into session in January of 2022. And they're only in session for three months. In three months, PETA got five bills passed, five bills that essentially would shut down in Vigo. Then the USDA is sort of on the sidelines. They're kind of embarrassed because they didn't really do enough. But the U.S. Department of Justice found out about the dead dogs, and they went in, and with the... Uh, Inspector General's office, the feds sued in Vigo and said, you've you got to do something about this. Stop this practice, which is a violation of the Animal Welfare Act. I mean, that was the key thing. And, you know, you said, is anyone arrested? The problem is the USDA just kind of, you know, they, they see it as they're, they're part of this capitalistic enterprise and they didn't shut them down. The U.S. Department of Justice took him to court, took in Vigo to court. And get get this. Invigo said, OK, look, we're not going to change because when a law is makes what they do illegal in Virginia, they're just going to find another state to do their dirty deeds. OK, so they this is what this is how they try to negotiate an exit. Their exit was, hey, look, we're going to go somewhere else. But, uh, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could sell these four, these, these five thousand dogs and just like 
you know, get rid of our, our population and sell them to labs and make money. And the judge in the case wouldn't have it. The dogs were then released. And now we have 4,000 dogs, 4,000 dogs that need homes. And HSUS, the Humane Society of the United States, is working to try to get them homes. But I just wanted people to know if they were seeing these stories about Invigo, this little breeding facility for you know, for mad scientists and researchers, you know, that and you know, this is the, the reason why 4,000 dogs had to be released and up for adoption. Essentially, it was PETA's undercover investigation right. that freed the dogs. Good. And people can listen to uh, the PETA podcast episodes 220 and 228 and get some background. But 4,000, if you need a beagle, this would be a perfect time to get one. Read a, get a beagle, 4,000 okay. of them. Tell me about and, the animal. Uh, what is the Animal Liberation Front? The Animal Liberation Front was an organization based in Britain at first. Well, they started there and they just saw things happening in labs and they wanted to do something about them. Uh, they had to break the law to free animals in, in, in Great Britain. But the idea of or the, how they did things was seen by some people here in the United States and an animal liberation front was started here more than 30 years ago. And a lot of these people are just regular. I mean, animal, what's an animal rights activist? They're just regular people with compassion and empathy. They see something happening to animals and they need it stopped. And it was actually started by uh, a woman here. Her name because she goes by a code name, Valerie. She worked for the Washington. She was a, a, a DC police officer. And I, uh, I talked to Ingrid Newkirk, who's the founder and president of PETA about this. It's going to be in the next PETA podcast, but Ingrid tells the story about how the animal liberation front was started in America by, by this group, a well-organized group of people who went into labs released and freed the animals. In fact, that's a title of Ingrid's book, Free the Animals, um, the history of the animal liberation front in America. And, uh, and she talks about how people, law enforcement tried to uh, infiltrate PETA thinking that PETA was the animal liberation front, but it wasn't. This is another organization of, of animal rights and animal lovers who saw things in labs and wanted to change things. So if you want to know, uh, you know, the, uh, the origins of the animal liberation front, uh, Ingrid Newkirk's new book, actually it's not new. It's a 30th anniversary edition of her book. It's called free the animals. The interesting thing is 30 years. They were doing that 30 years ago. Hmm. And we were just talking about in Vigo and they're doing it in 2022. Right. And, right. You know, we have it, limited it time. Yeah, we have limited time. Uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn has two guests coming up. Oh. So let, let's talk about meditation and yeah. how it changed your life. Well, you know, I'm pretty excitable a lot of times, as you know, and uh, I, I, I think it has affected my life and my choices and what, what I've done, you know, except marrying my, my wife and, you know, meeting you, but then like not talking to you for like 20 years, that was a positive thing for me. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, the thing, the thing is, 
I started meditating about three years ago. And I know that, you know, whenever we mention meditation, that, you know, sometimes we get into this thing about self-love and all this stuff. But I'm serious. Uh, it has really helped me uh, cope with things over the last, I would say, three to four years. I started getting into it about four years ago, more seriously about, you know, maybe two years ago. And it has made me deal. I mean, first of all, I, I, I know you've just been through this death in your, your life. And I, I know that my meditation practice has helped me deal with the idea of life and death and the renewal that you go through each and every moment. I don't want to sound like uh, Dr. Samuel Benjamin's clone here, but it, it seriously helps you deal with the idea of, you know, your self-awareness, you know, because the whole idea of meditation is to put you in the present. So you're totally in the present, aware of your circumstances. But what that helps you do is, number one, it helps you find a certain amount of happiness beyond your circumstances so that your happiness is not dependent on, I got a big car, I have a big house, I have whatever. It helps alleviate whatever suffering. What if you have a big house and a big car, then you don't need meditation? No, it means that you can use meditation to help you understand why you still feel you need the big. Oh, I see. Or the big house. But the other thing. Our time is up. That's our. The the second reason why you meditate, not just the idea of uh, happiness beyond your circumstances, but you also use it to regulate your reaction to emotions and things that you experience in life. That so that you're not reactive, so you're self-regulating so that you can make the best possible decisions. And, you know, uh, no one, as, as I was growing up and becoming a young man, and, and, and when I met you in the 80s, when... In, Let's I, not they, talk they about the that. 80s. Let's not... Okay, we yeah, all no, did a lot I know. Of but that inflationary time, I the, know. the 80s. But we're but, running... But, but seriously... We, we, we have to wrap it up. Right, uh, one last line. 30 okay, seconds. Okay. But, but, but seriously, it, meditation has helped me deal with that, that overreaction. Sharon Salzberg says uh, her definition of mindfulness is when you're mindful, you don't punch that guy in the face. And I have a that rings true to me. I have become more mindful and meditation has changed me. So anyway. Okay. I, I just I just wanted to share that with Thank you. Thank you. I and, appreciate uh, it. Thank you. Thank you. Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Read him once a week over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And where can we watch your live stream? I'll watch my live stream 2 p.m. Pacific live every day on Twitter at Emil Amok or on Facebook at EmilGuillermo.media or on AMOK.com. Fantastic. Thank you, Emil. I'll see you next Thursday. And thanks, David. Great job. Thank you. Well, that means the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is about to join us with two guests. One, uh, we're not, not all together, though, right? 
And we're going to talk about uh, obscenity, and then we're going to talk about draft registration. And the premise of this whole coming hour is that we have too damn many criminal statutes in the United States. And it's even worse when they can be used, but aren't frequently used. And that means prosecutorial discretion run amok. Okay. So... Do you want Edward and Lawrence together? I, I, let's start with Larry Walters, and then we'll okay. go to Ed. Okay. And uh, but yeah, I think it'll be clear okay. what's happening. Okay. As we get through the, the next sixty. Okay. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, for a quarter of a century, ran Americans United for separation of church and state, and we we love him. He's a, a barrister, an attorney member of the Supreme Court bar and a uh, an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Take it away, Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Thank you. It's good to be back. Um, let me give you a little background before we uh, get Larry here. Um, in the early years of the Ronald Reagan administration, Reagan decided that it was essential to form a commission to study idea of pornography. He was very disturbed when in 1970, a similar commission had said, there's no link between pornography and any antisocial behavior. So there's a notice in the Federal Register early in the Reagan administration that said pornography was a national, serious national problem, the study of which it said was essential to reflect the concern a healthy society must have regarding the way in which its people entertain themselves. I wasn't sure that was in the Constitution as one of the purposes of the founding of the country, but he thought it was very, very important. So with that kind of a background, assuming it's dangerous, you can imagine the kinds of people that were on that commission. And I don't want to belabor this history, but I just want to suggest that there were so many people in this commission who knew from the get-go that they hated pornography and wanted to find new ways to curtail it. These are people like its chair, Henry Hudson, now sadly a federal judge, who at the time was a prosecutor in Arlington, Virginia, right outside of uh, Washington, and who had managed to scare local convenience stores out of even stocking Playboy magazine, which to my knowledge, and Larry can correct me in a minute, I don't think has ever been declared obscene anywhere in the United States. And then it had people like Father Bruce Ritter. Bruce Ritter was a man who actually thought that it was possible that Michelangelo's statue of David being nude and a penis showing might be pornographic, but who late in his uh, tenure as a priest uh, was found to have been purchasing the services of young men, not children, but young men, to join him in his hotel rooms, at least on one occasion, while he was literally on pornography commission business. James Dobson, longtime leader of the religious right group Focus on the Family. You can get an idea of who was on this and what their background was. They issued a huge report and that huge report contained literally dozens of recommendations for how to crack down on pornography. And I expect, as many did, that there would be a vast amount of legislation passed about pornography and that 
there would be a large number of prosecutions. In fact, the attorney general in Utah uh, said, I would expect that within the next 12 months, there will literally be an explosion of cases on the federal level. Well, Larry Walters is a, an ideal person to talk about this. He's a longtime First Amendment advocate. Uh, he's been representing people who were accused of distributing pornography. He's an expert on Internet law. And he is the, uh, the founder of the Walters Law Group down in Florida. Larry, it's nice to see you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Barry. Thank you for having me. Uh, just uh, for the record here, what is the definition in the law at this time of obscenity? It's kind of a three-part test. What is it? So for materials to be declared obscene in the United States, um, they have to meet this test that was set forth by a case called Miller versus California, known as the Miller test. And uh, the materials, when taken as a whole, um, have to uh, be patently offensive, um, depict uh, sexually oriented activities, appeal to the prurient interest in sex, and lack any uh, serious literary, artistic, scientific, or political value. And so that mishmash of words is uh, what determines whether an individual um, can make a film that's protected by the First Amendment or ends up in a cage uh, for creating that content. Well, the people who wanted an explosion of new part of sanity cases, uh, there was a group at the time uh, called the Citizens Commission for Law and something or other. And they, they suggested that a lot of these cases be brought. And there was a brief flurry of activity right after the Mies Commission came down. There were uh, interests in Congress to look strong, pure, and godly by including a lot of provisions in a 1990 omnibus bill on criminal code reform. But the way I see it, that something seriously went wrong with the idea that you were going to prosecute over and over and thousand, a kind of tsunami of prosecutions, because I don't think it really occurred, right? Uh, you know, um, there, there were a number of prosecutions brought during the uh, Reagan-Bush era, and um, so many so at one time um, that the Department of Justice was actually successfully sued um, by um, a, a producer to get them to stop filing these multiple obscenity prosecutions um, because th they were not designed necessarily to get a conviction in every case, uh, but they, uh, the producers were able to prove that these multiple prosecutions were designed to overwhelm the uh, adult industry and exhaust the limited number of First Amendment lawyers that had experience in defending these cases uh, to try to spread them out across the country uh, to appear in different courts at different times um, so as to be unable to effectively represent their client. Um, so they did try you know, a spurt of obscenity prosecutions for, for a bit, um, but uh, thereafter it was kind of like lightning striking. You know, there was, there was fear that anything could be declared obscene at any time, um, but you never know who's going to get hit or when. Some of the methods of that I was aware of in the early 90s. Just let's talk about what happened. There's a very famous case involving Cal Vista, which was a big distributor of adult materials in California. And they were 
charged with obscenity, uh, specifically a film called Sorority Pink, which featured a woman named Portia Lynn, who I used to speak to porn distributors convention and assure them that she was not my sister. And in fact, I, I got Ginger Lynn once to sign a, a picture of herself saying, I am not related to your husband, sent it to my wife. What happened in that uh, California Vista case, as you recall? Do you remember that? Um, that might have been a bit before my time. Okay. Um, but I, I can tell you that there were numerous cases brought in the uh, late 80s and early 90s uh, against the producers and disseminators of adult content. Um, you know, the crazy thing is that th the same content could be declared both obscene and not obscene in the same court within a matter of a month. Um, there was no rhyme or reason as to any of the jury's decisions on these things. As you can imagine, you know, it, juries were asked to, to watch an adult film in a sterile you know, courtroom and talk to each other about what they thought about this film and whether it appealed to their sexual interests. Um, you know, you, you just didn't get honest reactions and uh, forthright discussions in these juries that were asked to watch these films. And so it was, you know, highly unpredictable as to what would happen in these cases. Yeah, this one ended in a hung jury, a mistrial, because they, the members of the jurors who were talked to afterwards said, we just we couldn't agree that this was met the standard, whatever those that word soup really means. And that um, then one of the things that the Mies Commission had talked about a lot, named after Ed Mies, who was the attorney general during most of the time that the commission was functioning, were to use racketeering statutes against purveyors of sexual material. And uh, that was a popular effort for a while, but what, what has ever happened to that? The idea of, of criminal enterprises, when you think of, you know, the mafia, but then say, well, well, maybe we could use that against obscenity distributors. Yeah, you know, that, that very concept is but what got me interested in doing First Amendment work on behalf of adult entertainment companies. Uh, in the late 80s, you know, I, I started to read articles that this law that was designed, like you said, to, you know, to imprison uh, mafiosos and criminal cartels that were dealing drugs and committing arson and murder um, was now going to be used to put people in prison for making movies that the people who watched them wanted to view and that the actors that performed them then wanted to make. And that just struck me as, as, as wrong. I was doing some white collar uh, criminal and civil defense involving RICO. And it was just astounding to think that the government would now use this law that was designed for something very different um, to prosecute people that were involved in otherwise First Amendment protected activities. Yeah, there was a, a famous case, again, I'm not sure if this was before your time, but right outside of Washington involving a couple, the Prebas. And the Prebas were convicted of uh, distributing obscene material. But a, a fellow writing for the American Lawyer magazine did a deep dive into the jurors and found them out, talked to them what they were thinking about. And they said that there were certain things that hadn't come up in the trial that the judge had not permitted, that had they known about it, they probably wouldn't have convicted. And some of those things were the fact that exactly the same videotapes that they were being prosecuted for were on sale in 
right next door, right in the next county, or even in a different part of the county. And they were very irritated about that. They also didn't understand the enormous criminal penalties for which the Priebus might have been liable, including the seizure of their house, the seizure of their businesses, um, and up to something phenomenal like $835,000 worth of fines. So the jurors, he talked to three of the women jurors and they said, you know, this is ridiculous. I mean, if we had known all of this stuff, we would never have voted. One of the women said, I thought to myself, these people sell dildos to adults. They are going to take away somebody's house for that. They didn't know what the penalties would be. And so they did convict. That is a a significant problem with criminal trial litigation, criminal defense, is that lawyers aren't allowed to discuss what the potential penalties would be. And these racketeering laws call for drastic forfeitures of all property, all proceeds that are in any way connected to the crime. And, And sometimes they can even go after proceeds and property that are unconnected to the crime if they can convince uh, a judge to issue these so-called substitute uh, asset forfeitures, where basically they proceed under the theory that, well, you spent too much of that money that you made, you know, making adult films. And so that money should be here for us to forfeit. And since it's not, we'll take your innocently derived funds and property and forfeit that. Um, And and these racketeering laws have been used in both criminal cases and in civil cases, uh, civil racketeering claims brought by the government uh, going after individuals where they never have to prove that somebody was guilty of a crime, uh, only that, you know, by a preponderance of the evidence that um, they engaged in this racketeering activity and by making adult films and uh, successfully seized their property under that theory. There's one other case kind of from history, and then I want to get into what I find most disturbing about the very existence of obscenity laws. But there was a very famous case involving a, a guy, forget his real name, but I think he went under the name Rob Black. And he, he also was in California. And uh, there was a prosecutor in Pittsburgh who downloaded some clips from the Internet of some really rough stuff. And uh, she figured that if she prosecuted in Western Pennsylvania, she'd have a better jury, a better chance of convincing the jury that this was terrible than if it had been prosecuted in California. And they too were convicted and they went to prison, but it was the only really big case I remember from the mid nineties, there was a PBS documentary about it. There was a BBC documentary, which I understand I'm in, but I've never seen it. What was that case about? They seem to be doing what people fighting porn always do, thinking that they can find the single worst image ever made of people having sex at of any kind. They will then take down the entire industry of adult entertainment. Yeah, that that case involved a a line of product called Extreme Associates, uh, both websites and DVDs. And uh, as you as you mentioned, the government forum shot, you know, it essentially looked at, okay, where can we go and try to find a jury that will be sympathetic to the government's claim and more likely to find the content to be obscene. Um, and that's part of the problem with federal obscenity laws and the venue statute where the government is allowed to prosecute obscenity in any place it is produced or transmitted through or received in 
And so you see this forum shopping where you know they'll do exactly that, look for a, a very conservative, let's say, um, or, or uh, a jury pool that is uh, more likely to, to find content to be obscene, at least in their view. And you're right, um, that, that case did happen in, in that particular um, jurisdiction in, in Pittsburgh. And there was a, uh, a, another case that we were involved in right about the same time, um, commonly known as the Red Rose Story case. And uh, that one was even even more egregious than the Rob Black Extreme Associates case, which involved, you know, kind of fetish oriented videos and, and clips and some edgy content. Um, the, the case I was involved in involved written stories and not a single image, just text. And she was prosecuted, the writer of the stories who was uh, typing these things out on her computer uh, as instructed by her therapist to try to work through some issues that she had and, and share her, you know, her thoughts and feelings with other like-minded people uh, was prosecuted for obscenity and by that same U.S. attorney. Um, so, you know, those were um, more the, the highly publicized uh, cases as, you know, the obscenity uh, roundup was, was reaching its end. You know, kind of ultimately prosecutors started to realize after a few embarrassing losses that uh, juries are less and less inclined to put people in prison for making a film that people want to see and that performers want to make um, you know, for willing adults. And they were started, they started to lose these cases uh, or get them dismissed by the judges. And over time, uh, the federal government in particular became very loath to bring new obscenity cases uh, right around uh, when Obama took office. Right. And uh, we haven't seen, you know, really any at the federal level since. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a fear also that the jurors themselves, if, able, if the allegedly obscene material is Debbie Does Dallas Part 47, maybe some of the jurors have been watching that streaming the prior weekend. I mean, you, you can't ask jurors, uh, what adult films have you seen during voir dire? So uh, I'm suspect. Now, here is the thing. Now obscenity is back in the news after decades of it being kind of ignored. And it's all because of the state of Virginia. Virginia elected last year a very conservative uh, new governor named Glenn Youngkin. Glenn Youngkin has uh, he campaigned mainly to get the critical race theory out of the Virginia schools and then announced on the day he was uh, put in office it's gone. And that was an easy promise to keep because it had never been there in the first place. But now there's something very interesting going on using an obscenity statute in the state of Virginia. And this is one where booksellers and a lot of civil liberties groups and the authors of two books for young adults, which the guy who brought the lawsuit under the Virginia statute, I guess, and kind of anybody can claim something as obscene. They don't want it just out of schools and libraries. They don't want it to be able to be sold in the entire Commonwealth of Virginia. And this is based on the theory, even if you sell it to an adult, it could fall into the hands of a minor. That's really holding the sword of Damocles over every bookseller and why Barnes and Noble, which is a very big retailer in Virginia, is involved in fighting this case. Yeah, you know, there, uh, as you said, there were maybe a couple of decades that went by that uh, we didn't hear 
much about obscenity. You know, those in the adult entertainment field have always been cognizant of the risk and the fact that these statutes are out there, both at the federal level and almost every state has a state obscenity prohibition. And so, you know, anything could happen at any time. Sometimes we have seen obscenity cases brought at the state level, but it's usually when you've got law enforcement that can't figure out any other charge that would be mm-hmm. applicable. And they say, okay, well, how about let's just try obscenity or disorderly conduct or something. Right. A few cases where people have been filming themselves outside, let's say where, you know, minors might be able to watch or in public where, you know, people could see them. And there really wasn't a statute they could find that prohibited being nude in public. Um, but they would try these obscenity charges and, and most of those cases get dismissed or pled out. So we don't really know how an obscenity case would pan out if taken to a jury in recent times, given the proliferation of the internet and broadband and everybody having access on their cell phones, I think would be a, a tough sell to a jury. But like you said, now, you know, they're experimenting with this idea that, well, um, let's, you know, let's litigate on the basis of what if kids can see this stuff. And right. there is a, a different kind of standard that's applicable when you're talking about prohibiting obscene materials as to minors. Um, it's, you know, it's commonly called the Miller Light test. Um, and it um, involves, you know, that same kind of three-prong analysis, but they look at, you know, what is um, uh, appropriate for minors. And that's a different standard. You know, we've got jurors in a courtroom evaluating, do I want my kids to be able to see this? And, and you know, it may be that some of those statutes um, could be effectively used with some, uh, you know, some content that would be perfectly acceptable for adults, but not for children. Uh, we haven't seen much of that. Um, they've tried to do it, you know, on, on the internet to, to impose age verification on adult websites, but all those um, attempts have been struck down by the federal courts as a violation of the First Amendment. But now, you know, you're talking about hardcover books and booksellers in Virginia, and it's going to be a, a fascinating case to watch. Um, you know, we're seeing that uh, you know, there, there's you know, potential new efforts to uh, invoke use of the obscenity laws on um, GOP platforms and, and um, you know, this kind of idea of declaring pornography to be a public health crisis and coming right. up with ways to allow people to sue uh, distributors that don't have proper age verification on their websites. So, yeah, there is a new round of kind of anti-pornography war on porn going on using um, not only obscenity statutes, but trying to conflate the idea that um, pornography equals prostitution equals sex trafficking making a big leap uh, between, you know, very different activities and trying to prohibit uh, constitutionally protected material under the theory that, well, maybe some sex trafficking could occur uh, if it's not totally banned. So very interesting issues. Yeah, I mean, it's um, so many of these ideas that that you just talked about here. This is entirely separate, by the way, from efforts to restrict the sex trafficking with it's nothing to do with standard material, adult materials. It has nothing to do with child pornography. There are plenty of prosecutions, and notwithstanding that I worked for the ACLU and the ACLU at the time, uh, I think it, its only partner in this was the New York Times, but they thought that there could be no restrictions on so-called kiddie porn, which I thought was literally beyond stupid. But I was, I was their lawyer at the time. Um, do you have, David has rejoined us. Do you have any questions before we turn this over? Yeah. To Ed has talk about another set of bad laws. Yeah. Can you hear me? This is fascinating. 
It's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite topics. So Clarence Thomas was a big fan of Long Dong Silver, who told Anita Hill about the pornography he enjoyed in his recent ruling on New York's gun laws. Uh, No, his concurrent, I think, was it on Alito's decision? He wrote about revisiting Griswold, revisiting Lawrence versus Texas. Correct. Oberfeld. So Clarence Thomas is saying we should go back and not just stop with Roe v. Wade, but look at same-sex marriage and uh, same-sex. Does that include pornography? Is there a, is there a ruling, a Supreme Court real, ruling that he would be concerned about? Yeah, absolutely. I can address that. You know, fortunately, Thomas is kind of the lone ranger on that issue. You know, none of the other justices agreed with that line of reasoning that we should revisit these other privacy rights. And, uh, you know, the, the rest of the majority uh, were very firm in that this ruling has nothing to do with anything except abortion. Um, now, you know, who knows how long that will hold water? Or, you know, the judges will change their mind or get new justices. But uh, at least as of now, uh, Thomas's view is, is not the prevailing view. But if it were to catch wind, catch fire, then uh, other rights that are dependent on the constitutional right of privacy that was found not to apply to abortion could be at risk, as you mentioned, contraception, uh, same-sex marriage. And uh, there's a case that allows you to possess even obscene materials in your home under the theory that, you know, you have privacy rights to read, watch, and enjoy in your own home whatever you want to. And it's not the government's business to decide whether something is obscene that you happen to be watching or reading in your house, uh, Stanley versus Georgia. And that case could easily be revisited if we're starting to uh, reinterpret what was found to be protected rights, you know, back when the founding fathers uh, were drafting the Constitution. You know, they probably didn't anticipate uh, Internet pornography. Although I think Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were fans of pornography, weren't they? Very well may have been, um, but, you know, certainly uh, times have have changed. Uh, Sexual mores have changed. Uh, Attitudes have changed, I think, substantially since a a rather puritanical time back in the founding father's day. But they were big defenders of liberty and privacy and freedom of speech. Um, So it'd be interesting to see what happens. I hope we don't ever get to the point where we're revisiting all the privacy rights that have been enshrined in that case law for decades. Right. Well, I'm afraid we're going to end up revisiting those. And of course, the absurd thing with the Stanley versus Georgia decision, you can possess obscene material, but you can't get it because it has always failed. It temporarily worked in a couple of cases that I remember. But if you say, but wait a minute, if you, how are you going to get it if you can't go out and buy it? And there's no right to purchase that which is declared. Legal. Make it yourself. Make it yourself. People do that, I understand. Larry, thank you very much. And I, I, I hope it's clear that the prosecutorial discretion that is given and exhibited in these obscenity cases is one of the reasons I think we shouldn't have obscenity laws in the first place. 
protect the unwilling, protect those who are trafficked. But once somebody volunteers to make a film and somebody else agrees to be in it, that ought to be enough to meet the human community standard. My house, that's the only community that matters or should matter. Thanks for being with us. Well said. Thank you. Nice to be here. Terrific. Thank you. Turning now to another collection of bad laws that we ought to get rid of, my friend Ed Hasbrook. Let me tell you a little about Ed. And I want to, again, I feel the need to do a little bit of a background because um, we're not, a lot of these things seem like ancient history. Um, Back during the Carter administration, Carter, of course, gave a kind of limited pardon to draft resistors from the Vietnam War wasn't very broad, didn't do a huge amount of good, but he did it, he took some political risk. And then he was asked uh, in 1979, well, why don't we bring back registration for the draft? Nobody wanted to bring back the draft, they said, but they're notorious liars about those things. They said, uh, eh, let's bring it back. And, and the Carter administration said, no, we're not gonna do that. And I remember working, I, I, I was at the ACLU and at the United Church of Christ at the time. And um, we literally get the sheets from the White House, from the Carter White House in 1979, uh, so that we could compare notes at seven o'clock every evening about whether we were going to defeat efforts to bring back draft registration. And we did defeat it. And one of my neighbors now here in Washington, and uh, was one of the great members of Congress who was taking leading the fight, as was uh, uh, the one from the state of Colorado. And we beat them. I mean, it was it wasn't a, a slaughter, but I mean, we did in fact prevent the return of registration. Then, curiously, come the next year during the State of the Union address. Uh, many of us have heard rumors that Jimmy Carter was going to announce that night, as he did, that he was going to begin registration for the draft. A new selective service, which had been in deep standby, was about to be resurrected. Carter's speech said draft registration was a signal to the Soviets who had, of course, recently invaded Afghanistan, added that the United States must be prepared to use force in the Persian Gulf as part of an expanded defense perimeter. So he sounded like a warmonger, and maybe he was. Our next guest, Ed Hasbrook, I've known since those days of fighting draft registration. He not only said no to the idea of draft registration, but personally said, I am not going to register. Ed, nice to have you with us. My pleasure. So regular listeners to this show uh, know that I believe, with the exception of chattel slavery, conscription, forced military service is literally the worst institution that has ever existed in the United States. It's that bad. It gives a enormous amount of power to the government, not just to seize your money, but to seize your children. And in fact, that was one of the interesting things about it. There were libertarians who opposed draft registration. There were socialists who opposed draft registration. It was kind of one big happy coalition most of the time. 
What do you remember about the anti-draft movement itself? We'll get to your participation in it later. Well, it was enormously spontaneous. Um, It mobilized extraordinarily quickly. Um, It was extraordinarily diverse, as you have noted. And perhaps what's most important about it and most forgotten is that it was effective and successful beyond our wildest hopes. I think most people looking at it thought that resistance to uh, the draft was mere protest. I think few people anticipated that there will be a level of mass noncompliance that would actually render it unenforceable and force uh, the government to abandon uh, the attempt to enforce it. So in that sense, uh, I think that's a very important lesson for the presence. It was one of the great victories at a time when, you know, (laughs) uh, there weren't a lot in the face of, you know, the movement from the Carter administration to the Reagan administration, both on issues of peace and war and on issues of civil liberties. But one of the few real clear-cut victories of that period for those movements was that we prevented what might well otherwise have been. And you know, some of the memoirs of Reagan administration officials have made clear that they hoped not merely to take that first step of signing up young men, but to actually move back to reinstate the draft as part of putting Vietnam behind us and gearing up for the next war, wherever that might be. And of course, um, one of the important things to note, too, is, uh, as you've mentioned, that draft registration was a response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And it was an attempt supported and it came, it didn't come from, you know, Carter's military advisors, it came from his campaign advisors, it was an attempt to show that Democrats could be as bellicose as the Republicans were being in an effort to counter Reagan in the presidential campaign. And there's a lesson there. It was unsuccessful. Carter lost the election anyway, but it also established a very fatal in the end climate of bipartisanship. It jump started the build up to what became 40 years of failed U.S. military intervention in Afghanistan. Remember, I went to prison for refusing to fight on the side of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, who were the people we were backing for the first 20 years of our intervention in Afghanistan. So it was unsuccessful there. It was unsuccessful. And this is an important lesson today. It was unsuccessful in sending any kind of effective message to the Soviet leadership, but did nothing to deter Soviet aggression. Instead, what it did was, again, to jumpstart the Reagan administration's nuclear brinksmanship. And so what is, I think, very disturbing is that today, some of the initiative to expand the current failed draft registration program or try to expand it to women is coming from Democrats who have a similarly misguided idea, who have learned nothing from that failed experience in the Carter administration, who think that we're afraid to seem weak and not show that they're standing up to Russia today. 
rather than realizing just how much expanding draft registration would be today, a exactly. provocation to Russia, enhancing the risk of nuclear war over the Ukraine. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because Jimmy Carter claimed that he wanted to register. We'll get to the modern a skirmish over this, but that he wanted to register women also. And he did a kind of a, like a nanosecond of work to do that. I don't think for a second that he actually wanted that to happen. And Patricia Schroeder, who was a congresswoman from Colorado that I mentioned earlier, she was so ticked off because she told me once, she said, you know, I fought like hell to keep this out of last year's legislation. We won. And now he's coming back. And his staff told me, uh, well, Pat, we, we're hoping you can handle the woman thing. And she said, no, feminists are against using war as a tool of policy. That's what I'm interested in. And they did. It, I can't even say it split the feminist community at the time that that Carter did it because almost every serious feminist movement at the time said, we don't want anyone registered. That's our position. No men, no women. So I don't think he ever took it terribly seriously. And he also had an amazing effort to, to kind of listen to the evidence and then reject it. For a long time, the Selective Service Director was a, a guy named Bernard Rosker, Bernie Rosker. He had, he, he had some kind of um, uh, job in the Pentagon uh, for a while, but, but he, uh, he had issued a report right before Carter made his announcement at the State of the Union address that said we really didn't need registration, just clean up some of the technical stuff. And we could still deliver people in the event of the next war, at least as quickly as we could without registration. I think at one point he said the registration would only game at seven days of time. When, uh, when Carter looked at that study, he simply rejected it because I guess he thought he knew better than analysts did about everything. And it almost seems, because I've been doing a lot of writing about this, almost seems like arcane, silly kind of numbers crunching that was going on, but it, was, it became terribly important. I never believed, and I think the historical evidence is, is along this line, if you have a war that is popular, it ain't gonna be popular with me, but if it's popular, you're going to find so many people re recruited. They don't have to recruit very hard. They just sign up. That happened in the Civil War. It happened in World War One, World War Two, uh, And it was only when it got to really unpopular wars like Vietnam that uh, people said, uh, I'm, I'll be, not be signing up for that one. Isn't it more a sign of weakness for a country to say, even if we need people in a just war, whatever that might be, um, we're going to have draft registration in our back pockets? Because if enough people don't see it as a just cause, we'll have to conscript the bastards to do it. I think that's. That. Certainly part of the thinking and the danger, there's a tendency by some folks to say, well, it doesn't really matter because we're not actually going to get into a draft. And I think they're failing to see the way that just as nuclear weapons are a tool of war, even when they're not exploding, 
having the draft contingency plans for a draft is a tool of war. And we heard a lot about this during the hearings of the National Commission on uh, Military, National and Public Service, which was appointed five years ago as a way to kind of give political cover to Congress. We'll appoint a blue collar, I mean, a, a blue chip commission that will study this and make recommendations. And it was actually very stage managed. I was the only draft resistor who was invited to testify. But we did hear in testimony before them war planners who came forward and said, we don't actually think we're going to use a draft, but we need to have it as a contingency option. And the subtext was thusly, we want to be able to plan for war without limits. We don't want to have to consider in our war planning that we'd ever have to constrain our wars to those wars that the people are willing to fight popular support. We don't want to have to make that part of war planning. But at the same time, this is why ending draft registration is so important. It's one of the few ways that popular direct action can actually impose constraints, not only on war making, but on war planning, to force into the arena of war planning considerations of which wars the public actually thinks or would think are worth fighting. Right. Right. Um, the law Let's let's talk about your resistance to it. Uh, Bob Kastenmeyer of Wisconsin, congressman from Wisconsin, was probably the only truly progressive. I mean, he was more progressive in my experience than even Bernie Sanders is today. I mean, he really not talked the talk. He decides when they're about ready to start registration to hold a hearing on the effect of draft registration on the judicial system, and uh, he's a. Eight million people are uh, going to be registered. And I remember I testified there and I said, I think this was a quote. I don't think you could get nearly four million men in peacetime to register for a symbolic charade if you promised to give them a gold brick when they registered. I think that was the quote of the day in the New York Times. But anyway, that was my point. You couldn't possibly. There was evidence from the end of Vietnam. People were just they were refusing to register. And by the time Ronald Reagan decides he gets in office, he ran against the idea of having registration. And of course, all the warmongers he had around him said, no, 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 we, we, that would look, make us look weak. We have to keep it. And then they decided to begin prosecutions. And I happen to have handed to me once in my office a transcript of a meeting at Mace that we talked about in regard to the Pornography Commission and uh, Jim Schlesinger and a couple of other warmongers. And they were all talking about where to bring the first prosecutions. And they said, well, you we don't want to do it in D.C. And then one of them piped up and said, uh, yeah, no place where there's high unemployment either. They wanted to make sure that they could get people Bernie Rosker, I think, had been replaced uh, shortly thereafter by an even worse person. But they said, we, you know, this is not one of us. This is not Mickey Mouse. If you don't register for the draft, you will be a felon. You will be subject to five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. We're not playing games here. But then it's a funny thing happened. A few people wrote 
to the Selective Service, and I think you were one of them, who said, look, don't, I'm not hiding anything. I think there's something wrong with this system. I am not going to register for it. And you wrote him a letter, right? Yes. And all of the people who were prosecuted were, with one exception, and in his case, it turned out he didn't even know he was supposed to register. They, they decided to pick somebody randomly at lot to prove right. they could and found right. somebody who didn't even know they were supposed to register. And he registered and they had to drop the charges. Yep. But the other 19 of the 20 people, and it was only 20 out of all the millions who were actually indicted. The others were all people who had either written to the government or actually publicized our resistance. And the government defended this as an act of prosecutorial discretion, saying it was effective deterrence because we were the people who would scream the most loudly. And so it would generate the most intimidating publicity, which, of course, it, it, exactly the reverse happened. These show trials, deliberately show trials on the government's parts, were show trials for the resistance. They called attention to the numbers of people who hadn't registered. But equally importantly, they picked out the public non-registrants or restricted even consideration of prosecution to those who publicized what we'd done because they had to prove a specific intent element of knowledge and willfulness. So somebody who stayed closeted about their resistance and my queer comrades in resistance spoke very explicitly about both the decision not to register and the decision to come out as a non-registrant, which had political benefits, but carried an element of political risk. Um, the only people who could be prosecuted were the people against whom the government had evidence of our knowledge and willfulness in the form of our public statements, which right. could be used to convict us. And so although um, the Supreme Court ultimately upheld this exercise of prosecutorial discretion against the most outspoken non-registrants, in practice, what it did is it communicated very effectively to the masses of people who simply had quietly stayed home that there was safety and silence as well as safety and numbers. And in fact, the registration percentage plummeted, and especially in the places where they brought these uh, prosecutions and the government backed off and abandoned prosecutions. We know much, much later, uh, decades later, um, some of the officials involved in that talked to a reporter from U.S. News and World Report and talked about what had happened, where Selective Service wanted to move on with more prosecutions. And the people at the Department of Justice said, look, this is a waste of time. It's not working. And so what's happened is every year since then, the Selective Service system generates from data matching and you know list brokers and so forth, uh, a list of, you know, couple hundred thousand names a year and turns all those names over to the Department of Justice as referrals for possible prosecution. And the Department of Justice sends them to the circular file, not because they couldn't, if they wanted to pick out any individual sure. who had spoken out, they could still prosecute them, but because they realized that it's failed. And the thing now is this, that Although there were the hearings that you alluded to that Representative Kostenmeyer held in Madison and Washington in, in 1980, where exactly what happened was predicted by you and others, that, um, that this would be a failure in the face of, of massive noncompliance, and they went ahead with it anyway, but they haven't learned anything. And the problem is that there's been no comparable hearings uh, today. Ironically, the person who chairs the comparable committee today in Congress is Jamie Raskin.
who yeah. in 1980 was organizing demonstrations on the Harvard campus as an undergraduate against draft registration. And, and who, when he was a small child, his father, Marcus Raskin, had been prosecuted for conspiracy to advocate draft resistance. Right. He now chairs the corresponding uh, subcommittee of the uh, Judiciary Committee in the House and would be in a position to hold hearings, but has not chosen to speak out in recent years on this particular issue. But there's been essentially no consideration in the current debate about selective service as to whether it would be enforceable or not. Um, that was an issue that was scrupulously avoided by the National Commission on Military Service. In fact, we later found out from records that were released only after the commission disbanded, and I'm still suing the National Archives to get some of their records that they tried to destroy. Um, but we did find out later that they actually tried to find somebody from the Department of Justice to talk about prosecution policy, and they couldn't find anybody in the Department of Justice who knew anything about this because nobody had given even any thought to the possibility of trying to enforce this law in decades. Now, where would you estimate it? Let me make it clear about the law. The law doesn't just say you have to register if you're a male to, you know, third, within 30 days of your 18th birthday. It says you have to tell the government every time you move. Well, I mean, I moved a lot between, say, 18 and 22, a lot of places. Um, I don't remember ever. Of course, I had registered for the draft a long time before you were even liable for it. But um, what do you estimate the number of people are that are guilty of not only not registering, maybe if we know that, I'd like to know what the numbers are, say, every year, and then who didn't change their address properly, because that's also... Uh, you're supposed to men are supposed to tell the selective service within 10 days of any move until they turn 26. And even the the chair of the House Armed Services Committee during a hearing last year just laughed this off and said this is universally ignored. And I think he's right. Um, there hasn't been an audit. Again, this is the, the degree of sort of willful, see no evil, hear no evil blindness. The, you know, the government does not want to admit that a major government program has failed, least of all that it's failed in the face of massive popular resistance. They do not want to empower the public to disobey disliked laws and immoral laws and warmongering laws. So, you know, there's been this standoff where there's been no face saving way to end the law, but they really don't want to call attention to this. So there has not been an audit of the Selective Service database in more than 40 years since 1982 was the last GAO audit. Even then, their prediction was that 20 to 40 percent of the addresses would be out of date. It's probably higher than that now. I think it's fair to say that those who fully comply with the law are a minority. And that if there were to be a draft based on the current database, um, the majority of the induction notices would wind up in the dead letter office, which Correct. means that people could just ignore them. One of the things we tried uh, when I was uh, kind of the chair of a big coalition of, as I said, of libertarians and socialists, everybody in between, uh, there was a fellow named Ben Sassway. I think he was literally the first non-registrant to be prosecuted out in San Diego. And uh, we took out ads in uh, on buses 
didn't have a lot of money to do this, but announcing the theory of jury nullification. And I, I know a lot of people bothered by this idea, but I'm firmly supported. It's the idea that if a judge says, uh, picks you on the jury, and you listen to the facts, and you listen to the law, and then you say, wait a minute, this is all bullshit. I am not going to listen. I am not going to convict somebody and send them to jail for five years for doing something that is as dopey as uh, registering for the draft. And the reason it's now important, I don't know what you think about abortion, but I mean, I think this is the key. This is where people can come to the table. And if prosecutors go after doctors or women who obtain abortions, I think everybody needs to know about jury nullification. If I wasn't aging, I think what I would do is start an organization called the National Committee for Jury Nullification. Nullify obscenity laws, nullify registration for the draft laws, and any prosecution of women or doctors who perform abortion. Let me bring that back to one point in the present day debate where Congress right now is debating whether to finally end draft registration or to try to expand it to women. You know, the government had a pretty easy time back in the 1980s convicting those public non-registrants by my, like myself. Um, it, it didn't terrorize the resistance into non-existence, but they did put, you know, the, the handful of us in prison. I think it's going to be very different. And this is what's been missing from the debate about whether to try to expand registration to women. If members of Congress vote to try to expand draft registration to women, they have to be prepared to have the kind of show trials that defendants had defendants like me who may have been, you know, cast off as, you know, cowards and hippies and whatever people wanted to throw at us. But I think that the public reaction to attempts to throw a bunch of young female pacifists in cages because they're unwilling to agree to kill or be killed on command. You want to talk about where jury nullification would come in. I think members of Congress need to think very, very hard about the political blowback, because whether they like it or not, if they try to expand the draft to women, there will be resistance. And once again, they're going to find themselves with nothing much in their arsenal, but at least trying to bring some show trial prosecutions. And I think the experience that I went through, that you went through back in the 1980s with men, you try to translate that today with young women, very, very sympathetic defendants. I think that it will go very, very poorly for the politicians who support an expansion of the draft to women uh, in the face of such sympathetic defendants and the popular support that they want. When do you expect a vote in the House on continuing registration and similarly the add on of women? When's that going? The House uh, has uh, voted uh, today its version of the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, which includes no provision on this. But the Senate version of the NDAA does include a provision that would expand draft registration to women. I understand that an attempt will be made to amend that Senate version to substitute a provision that would repeal the Military Selective Service Act in its entirety. If, as you know, if those uh, House and Senate versions don't agree, this will be resolved in a House-Senate 
conference committee behind closed doors. And when it comes out of the conference committee, it would be virtually impossible to avoid. One of the clevernesses of the House Democratic leadership in pushing to expand draft registration is that they have to date avoided a floor vote in the House entirely. Mm -hmm. But twice before in 2016 and last year in 2021, either the House or the Senate or both voted to include an expansion of draft registration in the NDAA without ever having hearings on it, without ever having a full floor debate. We may once again see that happen. And, you know, if the only thing standing against it is what the leadership says in closed door conference committee negotiations, um, I'm not very sanguine about it. So I think it's important for people to support the Selective Service uh, Repeal Act, which is uh, H.R. 2509 and S1139. But it's also important, unfortunately, for people especially 15 and 16 year old women to start thinking about what they will do if they're ordered to sign up to be drafted. And for older people like us to start thinking about what we can do, not to speak for them, but to amplify their voices as allies to the next generation of young women draft resistors. Do you mind, do you mind, if, you. I, do you mind if I ask three um, questions? Go ahead, David. Thank Your you. Show. Thank you. Well, <laughs> it's better with, when you're hosting. Edward, thank you so much. You kind of glossed over your arrest. I'm just curious. You were arrested, and what happened? Um, I was convicted, and there's actually a really interesting story, if I may. Um, the prosecutor in my case was Robert Mueller. It was actually his first high-profile case as an assistant U.S. attorney in Boston. And although he's later you, he prosecutes. You, he prosecutes. Yes. Okay. That was the first case he he. That's the first case that but got the other, him on the front page. The other page. draft dodger with the bone spurs, he wouldn't prosecute Trump. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, Mueller Mueller was a, a Vietnam combat veteran. You know, like John Kerry, he was an Ivy League graduate who, out of some sense of militarism, anti-communism, noblesse oblige, had volunteered, went in, became a Marine uh, combat uh, infantry lieutenant. Unlike John Kerry, who learned from that experience and came back and was active against the war and spoke out against it, Robert Mueller came back from Vietnam believing in the legitimacy of that war and believing, although he'd been a volunteer, he came back believing in the legitimacy of the draft, which had conscripted the men who he led into battle. Um, so an unreconstructed believer in the Vietnam War and its virtues. And, you know, he got the instructions, which Barry alluded to from Maine Justice saying, bring these cases in sympathetic, you know, military friendly districts where we won't stir up the student movement and the anti-nuclear movement. He was in Boston. And in spite of those orders from Washington, which should have made Boston the last place you'd want to bring a case, and given the student population there um, and its role as a center of the anti-nuclear movement, in spite of that, he had such a Jones for draft dodgers that he inserted his own political opinions about war into his prosecutorial discretion and somehow managed to lobby to get permission to bring one of these handful of test cases in Boston against me. And I was convicted. Um, you know, again, I didn't put up a defense. It wasn't as there were there was any dispute about what I had done. Um, my view was that the ultimate verdict was going to be rendered as it was, not by the jurors, not by the government, but by the millions of other young men who, seeing my case, would decide whether or not to register. And I'm proud of the verdict that was passed on me by those other men right. who carried and, forward and, and, and their resistance went, and in the years to, to come. And you went to prison. 
Yeah, for about uh, six months in a federal prison camp um, early in the Reagan administration. A federal prison camp. And was it a nightmare? Um, no. And I say that with some caveats. Um, on the one hand, I don't want to I don't want to minimize it. But were you beaten? Um, I also want were to you beaten? It. Were you beaten in the prison? No, 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 no. Did you have um, solitary yeah. any solitary? Um, I, uh, briefly, and but not really uh, to any significant degree. You know, in terms of violence, um, you know, the other prisoners are. You know, this was relatively early in the drug wars, but early enough that most of the people were there. You know, who were were businessmen in the drug industry who were in prison in a, in a minimum security federal prison camp, which you know. Certain things are federal crimes. Certain things are state crimes. These were not you know, violent criminals. These were business people in an industry whose product the government thought produces a subversive state of mind. So they'd outlawed it. Um, and basically, you know, pretty good people. Also, it was early enough. This was before the radical restructuring of the uh, criminal justice system at the federal level under Reagan that involved the bringing in of the new sentencing guidelines and the multiplication of sentences, including for drug offenses. Most people back in the 80s were doing you know, federal time for drugs. They were doing you know, months or years, and they were just trying to get it over with and go home and get on with their lives. Right. Today, you know, things are very different. People are right. doing you know, life sentences and have to rearrange their lives very differently. Let, let, let so, me, so my last question is this. We agree. I agree with everything you're saying. War is criminal. There's no such thing as a good war, period. All war, as David Swanson writes, is a lie. However, I once saw the great Senator George McGovern speak late in his life. He served in World War II. He was a, a fighter pilot. And he said one of his regrets was getting rid of the draft because this is what George McGovern said. People stopped going through the system and there's a danger to a civilization when the citizens no longer know how the military works. They begin to turn the generals into heroes because it's so mysterious. He said the greatest generation, they were all drafted and they came home with a, uh, a gimlet, gimlet eye. Is that the term when it came to the military? They knew not to trust, at least half of them knew not to trust the, the military. So would you be in favor of something along the lines of two years of uh, public service where where you're drafted at the age of 18 and you have to serve the country for two years militaristically, either uh, AmeriCorps, you know, the Peace Corps. It's rigid. You're taken away and forced to serve your country for two years, either in the military, Peace Corps. Uh, you, you have to be housed in barracks uh, uh, away from your family to teach uh, or do public service? Would you be amenable to that kind of draft? 
No. Um, I don't think that instilling greater loyalty and blinder loyalty to the present government of the United States would be a good thing. Um, I do not think that um, serving the government's interests of a government whose largest enterprise is building nuclear weapons to prepare to destroy all life on Earth is a good thing. We need more skepticism. We more need more questioning. We need more resistance, not more obedience. I was at a, a, oh, an well, event. Let me, a I, don't mean, I don't mean to be. I, I, let me let me just let me respond to that. If we haven't had a draft since 1973. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Since then, the military-industrial complex has become unstoppable. We had a 20-year war in Afghanistan that maybe 1% of this country participated in. Our country has no skin in the game when it comes to war. It's an abstraction. The argument, I know you've heard this argument, is that if everybody had to serve, Afghanistan would not have lasted 20 years. If we had to go over and fight in Ukraine, as opposed to giving them $60 billion in weapons, we'd be at the peace table with Putin. So from a, a pragmatic standpoint, don't you think bringing back the draft would make us more sanguine when it comes to peace and war? No, and I give you two arguments as to okay. why. One is that it's, it's, the draft doesn't affect everybody. It only affects young people. The argument that we should use those subjects to the draft as some kind of you know bargaining chips, that we should threaten them with being sent to kill or be killed as a way to influence older people's votes is ethically tantamount to saying that we should kidnap young people and threaten to kill them and hold them as hostages against war. It is morally repugnant to make that argument when the draft only actually puts at risk the lives of the young. Secondly, um, at a different level of abstraction, I was at an event uh, okay, a so, couple years so ago. Let me, let me, let me respond. Do you mind if I respond to that, if you don't mind? There's something wrong with this country uh, where uh, demoralized and disconnected, we have no sense of civic responsibility, no civic duty. We're all been isolated. There's no sense of common cause. Isn't there something to be said for mandatory education where you have, I think you can agree that you, you should be forced to send your child to school. Right. No, I'm not an advocate for compulsory schooling. You're not I'm an, an advocate for youth liberation. You're not. An I advocate. don't think it's more obedience. What we need is more disobedience in the face of demands. We, we needed during the Trump administration more disobedience. We so, needed during the Reagan administration more disobedience. We need more whistleblowers. But how, we need more I, I agree with you. But how do you have. A, a civic responsibility if we don't lay down the law and say you're a citizen, you have to pay taxes and you have to get educated and you have to perform some sort of community service, whether or not it's serving in our military or serving in our, you know, in, in our cities. I have done no 
greater community service in my life than in refusing the government's orders to sign up to be drafted. I do not think that doing what the government tells you to do because the government tells you to do it without question serves the community or that training people to do that. But government is community. But, but, but the, it's called activism. I'm sorry. That is telling people that they should do what the government tells them to do because the government tells them to do it is literally the definition of fascism. Yes, but the government is a reflection of who participates in the government. If everybody has to participate in the government, you're less likely to have fascism. Right now, the only people serving in the military are sympathetic to the needs of the military. If you have people serving in the military who are not too thrilled about it, you're going to find more disobedience. You're going to find more people less likely to uh, obey illegal orders. Once they've been trained to obey and disciplined to obey, I don't particularly think so. You know, I, Do you I believe was, in government? Was, Do you believe in government? I'm an anarchist. No. Um, you don't believe in government? No. So government is greatest threat to our lives today. The largest enterprise of the U.S. government is building nuclear weapons to amplify the ability of bad people to do more evil. So who reigns in uh, the people who've taken over? If you don't believe in government, then corporations take over our government. Corporations are a creature of government. Look, we don't you don't have to be an anarchist to oppose the draft. There are lots of reasons to oppose the draft. But um, corporations are a creation of the government. Right. Even many libertarians would argue against uh, limited liability corporations. But who reigns? Um, so, but but who is going to rein in the wealthy and and the corporate elite? Who, who certainly not the government today. Government has not because people so, have, because I, don't you think it's because there's no draft? Because, because turning, th- looking to the government for solutions rather than looking to themselves. And one of that's my not mentors, a com- but that's not a community. With all due respect, that's not what a community is. A, a, a community is, as least as our founding fathers thought it should be. The government, the, the the promise of America is that the government is a reflection of the community. If you don't participate in the government, if you don't get involved, then only the crackpots end up running the government. And that's what we have right now. We have a country that does, excuse me for one second. We have a country that has no sense of civic responsibility, no sense of skin in the game when it comes to the government. So the only people who participate in the government are the rule is, is the ruling class. You know, government, I'm urging people to take responsibility, to take more responsibility for their own actions. That sounds kind of narcissistic to me. That sounds like something out of the 70s. That sounds like something from the me generation. I I agree with everything you say. I do. And and I think you're, you know, I never, I didn't go to jail to, to, you know, I have tremendous respect for you. I, I don't have your courage. But the idea that leaving it up to the individual is uh, that's a Hobbesian nightmare. That's a Republican state. I think the idea of expecting government 
the reform itself is a Hobbesian nightmare, frankly. And no, I think people, it's really people, un- pe- people, if you get people, it should be, it should, Australia works better than America because you're fined if you don't vote. You have certain responsibilities as a citizen of a country to participate. That's why Australia can do an assault weapon, do an immediate assault weapons ban after a massacre uh, took place. People aren't people aren't voting to draft themselves. They're voting to draft young people. You know, the argument was made, you know, how can you draft people when they're too young to be uh, to vote? And that was the prompting for the passage of the constitutional amendment to lower the voting age from 21 to 18. It was an attempt to legitimate the draft, knowing full well that draft age people were still going to be overwhelmingly outvoted by old people who were perfectly willing to sacrifice young people's lives for old people's desires. Okay. Okay. And the only way to stop that and to stop the scores is for young people to take the power that they have themselves to opt out of that system. Right. And not just to, to vote. I, but to act. Right. I, I think we both want the same thing. And you're a much braver human and a much braver American than I could ever be. Uh, I, I just I, I think we both want peace. And I think mm-hmm. we disagree on the role government should play in our lives. I think yeah, I think I, I think we need I don't more think you government. Have to go. I think government I, I is don't good. Think you're there to get to the question of whether you want a draft. Um. And, you know, I think the wars that we have had for the last, you know, 45 years since the end of the draft. And, you know, I, as I say, I, I, I heard David Swanson talking on stage with, with Dan Ellsberg a few years ago about this. And, and David asked Dan about this very question. And Dan said, well, yeah, sure. Um, we've had wars since the end of the draft. But if we'd had a draft during those periods, those wars would have been much, much worse. And that really? was... Ellsberg's considered opinion as a former war planner, that those wars would have been much, much worse if we'd had a draft. And I think he's right. We're spending more money in real dollars right now on defense Mm -hmm. than we've spent during Korea, World War II. Uh, I don't know. I uh, Ellsberg uh, had his moment. There's no question. And he's, (laughs) you know, but I anyway. Uh, I'm in the, by the way, I'm in the minority on this. I'm, I, I've, but I, just so you know, and I'd love to have you come back as strongly as you feel about the draft. Uh, I equally feel that I'm for the draft, but, but, but I, I never, you know, but I, I want to be respectful of you. And, and do you believe that, do you believe that the young women, who will refuse to sign up to fight, do you think they belong in cages? I believe uh, that's a tough question. So let me uh, obfuscate. I believe two years of public service, mandatory public service. I believe if, if, if my kids were taken from me at the age of five and forced to go to public school and I, that was one of the most upsetting things. I go, really, the government is going to take my kids away. And it's the greatest thing that 
you can do for your kids is to get them away from their parents. I'm for compulsory education <laughs> and I am for for compulsory voting and I am for compulsory public service that everybody has to do two years and it would change this country. It would a con mm -hmm. either the converse con the conservation corps. I'm sorry. Who defines what's public service? Donald Trump, when he's president, the military industrial complex has been running this country for the last decades. A, a democracy, a, gov a functioning government. The only way you're going to get a functioning government is if you get Americans involved in in the government. It's it's it is in the best interest of the military industrial complex. It is the best in the best interest of the corporations for us to be lethargic and not care because then they can get away with everything. But when you take kids, I'm not arguing for not caring. I'm arguing for caring more, for thinking more carefully about what you do for questioning every order from the government as to whether it does really reflect the public interest. If you're forced, if you're forced to follow uh, orders from the government for two years, you're going to come out of it the way my father came out of World War II, which was with a big middle finger to authority. Uh, you know, that that the great art that came out of World War II, Joseph Heller, Kurt Vonnegut, Larry Gelbart, the great comedy writer who wrote MASH, they saw war. Uh, George McGovern saw war. Uh, the guy who wrote uh, The People's History, uh, I've, I'm exhausted. Who, who, who's the great professor? Right? Howard Zinn, he Howard, testified in support of draft resistors in the 1980s. He dropped napalm. Yeah, but I think, you know, not everybody's 100% right. Including me. <laughs> Let's wrap it up. Thank you. I, so, David, I, I, um, I, I thank you for doing this. And believe me, more people agree with you than with me. I, I, I'm in the minority on, on this. But so, David, let me ask you one question. You know, I hate compulsory national service. I, I think that's almost as bad as military conscription. But I do so, with, I just pose this question. If women are included in your system of compulsory national service, could they choose to work for the National Organization for Women or Planned Parenthood? Or would the government tell them who they should work for? Well, underneath this conversation is, do you believe in government? I believe in government. I believe the post office works. I believe in the Environmental Protection Agency. I believe that the Labor Department, I think our government is capable of doing great things and it would do much greater things if there was some kind of two-year conscription that forced all of us to learn how government works and work for the government. The answer is government. We've had 45 years of... Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan pissing on government. We, we, this is, we've seen where that leads to today, right? We see what, yes. nature abhors a vacuum. You destroy a federal government and you see what replaces it. I believe government can provide better health care than Aetna.
I believe in government, but you need a government made up of people who have skin in the game. I don't, I, why, I, I can't believe I'm, I have to sell the idea on this show, the idea of government. Government is the answer. Well, it could be, but I'm not sure. Every week when I am on this show, I criticize, but not as much as some, the current administration, Joe Biden. What has he done? He was the best we could come up with as Democrats. And he, yes, he did make it impossible for get reelected, but do, does anybody really think that with all the power he has, the power of the bully pulpit, has he done even close to enough to change the way that all three of us and most of the people in the chat want this country to go? Absolutely not. But, but, but the American people had an opportunity to vote for my man, Bernie. And yeah. not enough people came out for Bernie and not enough people in America believe in government. So it goes back to Franklin Roosevelt saying to the left, make me do it. Make me do it. There, we don't have enough people who are making Biden and the Democrats do it. And I think compulsory service uh, when when you have skin in the game, you're going to make the leaders do it. I don't see any alternative. I, I, I don't see how I don't see we're on a downward slope. I don't see any. I think hyper individualism that Edward talks about. I think that's what got us into this mess. He's not talking about hyper individualism. He's talking about a personal commitment to do the right thing. If the person, if the people don't do the right thing, to think that the government, which is in theory made up of the people, will never do the right thing either. If it doesn't start with a personal commitment to justice, to democracy, to the very principles that I think we all agree on, um, we're in deep, deep trouble. I think it's... I would add to that that if... If coercion is the only source of order and organization that we can think of, we're in deep trouble. I think that there are many modes of cooperation and working together and organization other than authority. Um, and we're really like I, I limiting ourselves. I don't know. With kids. Do you, have, do you have kids, Edward? No, I don't. Okay. You know, sometimes kids need to be. Uh, coerced into taking piano lessons and they, and they say, I don't want to take the piano lesson. And it, it's, it takes a little courage for an adult to look at a child and say, you know what, maybe I know what's best for you. Maybe these piano lessons might be good for you. And I'm not calling for a paternalistic government. I'm saying that what our founding fathers set up for us, as flawed as it is, is the idea that sometimes forcing people to, uh, well, all right, I don't want to get into that. Sometimes people need to be forced kicking and screaming into doing what's best for them. 
I wouldn't have lost my well, virginity if that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, I just I can't think of a government in my lifetime that I would trust to tell me what's best and then expect me to believe it without any evidence at all. And that's what every government does. That's what the Carter people did. That's what the Clinton people did. That's what the Biden people are doing. They're telling us what's best for us. I would like to make an individual. It's why I don't give any money to any political campaigns that want to, you know, they want every day I get a request from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. I don't give those people a penny. If I want somebody in office, if I want someone to be elected, then I will send their particular campaign at any level locally in start for starters. I don't want somebody telling me we're going to give all the money that you give us and we're going to spread it out to all the Democratic Senate or House candidates. I don't want some of those people and I don't want them telling me what's best for me. I'll make that decision myself. To, will you come Thanks. back, Edward, please? Okay. Uh, go to resistors.info, please. Sorry to keep everybody waiting. Uh, I apologize. I, I looked at the time. I, I apologize. Reverend Barry W. Lynn, why don't you wrap this up? And, and thank you so much, Edward. This was great. Yeah. Well, I think that um, notwithstanding a, a bit of a, of a uh, complex discussion that we've had the last 20 minutes, but my point is, if you have criminal laws, don't let prosecutors decide when they're going to enforce them. Don't let them hang these over the heads of people to be utilized, as our first guest said, whenever they can't come up with something else to do. I bet that there are prosecutors, if they were prosecuting draft resistors, who would be going in to some of the neighborhoods here in D.C. and find some young man with a little pot and then say, um, you don't have a license for this. And by the way, where's your draft card? Oh, you don't have that either? That can be very hard on you. I don't want government having that power. I want to get rid of the draft registration laws. I want to get rid of all the obscenity laws. And there are plenty of other laws I'd like to get rid of also. Ed, thank you very much. Here's a man who went to jail for his beliefs. He has devoted all his life Absolutely. since then Absolutely. To, working, to working to try to convince people war is not the answer and government probably ain't the answer either. I'm not sure I can go that far, but I can tell you the governments I've seen, not a one of them has done the right thing. If the right thing is justice for every American. Thanks, Ed. Thank you, Ed. Thank you. Please come back. Thank you both. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you, Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Stay out of trouble, Reverend. Go to only good trouble. The Reverend uh, Barry W. Lynn, go to his website, barrywlynn.com, for the man's sermons, lectures, and appearances on television and radio programs, as well as podcasts and his writings. And pretty soon we'll be able to read your book. That's what I'm hoping. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs>
Thank, Thank you. you.